from Omaha, Nebraska to New York City, from planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space, a podcast with no equal, engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Twitch is on. Motherfucker, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. <laughs> you are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. Switch is on Battle Line Podcast. Uh, I, I don't say it enough, guys. Wherever you're watching, wherever you're listening, make sure you hit subscribe. It really helps us out. Yeah. Um, our our plays on on uh, audio formats for, for the last month for August were the highest they've ever been. But Thank we're you. still uh we're still not getting to where we need to be with YouTube. So if you're watching on YouTube, leave a comment, like, subscribe. We read all the comments, we want to hear all the feedback. Um with that September uh, is commemorating 10 years of the attack in Benghazi, which we're going to get into first, Chris. But before mm-hmm. we even do, and, and we're going to talk about this with Sarah Adams, uh, needless to say, people will see when it pans to your face that you are in bed and are probably wondering what happened because <laughs> they know that you were uh, away for an event last yeah. week. And, yeah. and for you, I know, like, Doing the public speaking is something you love to do, but this got to tie in something physical, yeah. something athletic, which is in your wheelhouse. And it seems like it was a great event until the very last moment. <laughs> yeah, I, I partnered with a, and they're a great, a great, a great uh, uh, firearms company as well. They make optics called Lucid Optics. Great guys, uh, Jason Wilson over there. But um, yeah, corporate leadership, corporate team building, and um, you know, there's people out there that do it right now. I think you know, Jocko is one that does stuff like that, and there's other groups. Well, I, I got asked to go do it for, uh, and I'm, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say their name or not, so I'm not, but it's a big okay. compression compression company that's international compression company. They build international things for international compression systems for, for oil and gas and paper mills and, and all sorts of stuff. But anyway, we're out there and we take them up for three days of team building and trust building. And we're on day two and day two is repelling. So and a lot of them are, are scared of heights. I didn't know. It was really shocking to see how many were having issues with it. But before we get into bad stuff, it was incredible. Helping people that are scared of heights get up on a tower and then rappel down. I posted one picture uh, showing a lady that she was, trem- oh man, that Nancy, her name's Nancy. Just just gobs and gobs of courage. And, and she travels the world on her own, just traveling the world on her own. And which is honestly, that's pretty, that's pretty brave right there. Um, but, uh, she got up on the tower and I helped her down, you know, right behind her, making sure I was basically holding her hand on the way down. And we had a tremendous rappel master by the name of Trinity, a former Marine, who's a friend of mine, but yeah, doing a lot of those trust building trains, land navigation, uh, day of repelling, um, and then just, you know, just discussing leadership with them because, uh, the company I was having some issues with their upper management. These are all upper management CEOs that are there. Well, the last rappel of the day, we didn't expect them to do it, but. 
their boss said, Hey, do you Australian repel? And I said, well, yeah, I, I've Australian repelled a lot. I used to do it all the time in the army. I said, we don't do it that much in operations because it's slow, but it, it looks cool. <laughs> I mean, it's not really that great for operations. He says, well, can you do a couple? I said, well, sure. I'll get up there last day. And, and you like anything in the last of the day, you're tired. Everybody's tired. I am. I'm a little wore out because I've been up and down the, the tower all day helping and it repellent's fun. So I took some time to do my own. But I get up there, did the first one, was fine. Just straight down, perfect. And I was like, well, uh, uh, let's go do another one. Let's get another one done. And just because I felt if it's fun. I mean, like, shit, I'm having fun. Let's go up there. And I remember, you know, the spider sense tingles. I got up there and I started to lean because Australian repelling is where you come face down. And to be quite honest, guys, Australian repelling, you shouldn't really do it off a building or a wall. It's for free fall and, sh- and then you break yourself on your rope. But I, I, I was on the slack. I was on the uh, slack side, not the non-slack side. So whenever you come off the slack side, for those of you who don't repel, there's a little give in the rope because it's got to tighten. On the non-slack side, there's a pole up and it tightens down over the pole and, and it creates a tension. Well, the slack side, I went down. It felt a little tighter than what I thought it was going to be. I even asked Trinity, I said, "Man, this feels a little tight than the last one." And so this doesn't feel normal. He goes, "Well, it's, I'm hooked. You're hooked up normal." I said, well, "Okay." And I trust him, and and I do. I think he had me. Tr- he had me up uh, in right, and I leaned forward. And as I stepped, the slack slack gave, which is normal, but it didn't go as far as I wanted it to. I thought it was going to, so it banged me back next to the wall. Caught myself on my right leg, which was fine. And then I tried to catch myself on my left leg, and that didn't work. And I heard the pop, and it, it just completely, yeah, destroyed my knee. I thought I popped my kneecap out of place first. But instead, no, it was a full quadricep tear, quadricep tendon tear, possible ACL tear, uh, and possible MCL tear. I got to get checked for MRI on Tuesday. But yeah, that was it. That's it. I, I basically popped it doing something I've done for years. And but that's 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 just how it was, man. So that's, that's I mean, where I mean this is going to be <laughs> tough though, as someone who knows you, because yeah. any and even someone who doesn't know you, and I feel like listeners of the podcast feel like they know you. This is the same way if I listen to. Uh, you know, any radio show that I like, I feel like I know those people yeah, because yeah. I it's, it becomes a part of your life. And I think people who listen to this uh, show, they may know you better than family members, you know, not not your direct no, family, true. but no, they true. listen to you two hours every single week. They get to know you. And and one thing is they know that you are a guy who loves to run. And you, you even say that you're a spiritual runner. It's something yeah. that gets you closer with God. It's something that gets you, you know, away from any anger and aggression you may have and, and keeps you at a level head and yeah, you are going to lose, I, I think a major, major part of your life for what a year. Uh, it might be. We'll see. We'll see how bad I built, how fast I build myself back up. But that's the thing is I've been through injuries before. I've been through some severe injuries before, you know, I've never been shot guys. So don't ever think, but, but I always look at it and as this is a chance for me to rebuild. It's like, you know, it's kind of like going to basic training, they shave off your head and you, you rebuild yourself. That's kind of where I get it from. It's like, well, this is God just giving me a chance to rebuild myself. So no worries. Let's go. Let's and we'll figure it out. And I'll get some. I'll get exercise in. I could do. But it, to me, it's just this is an opportunity to persevere. I'm always preaching perseverance. Well, here we go. Sure. Let's 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 put your money where your mouth is. And I I'm I I was exactly like that. Right, when we came off the off the the tower. I was like that. Everybody at the corporation. We're having a great day. They were they did tremendous. That company is outstanding. I think they have nothing to worry about. They're going to continue to be successful because of their attitudes, tremendous attitudes. But it got deathly quiet. 
when I got down, everybody's just quiet. And I remember I looked at everybody and I'm in pain. I'm not going to lie. I'm sweating like, cause I'm trying to hold it in. I'm trying not to show the pain hmm. and I'm sweating just buckets cause it, it hurts. But I looked at everybody, I go guys. And my dad used to say this to me, it's far away from your heart, son. You're going to be fine. That's what I said. I said, guys, it's not my, it's far away from my heart. I'm not going to die. Everybody smile. I hurt my knee, get to the hospital. You guys are going to do tremendous the, tomorrow at the final day of the course. And they did. So it was just, again, if, if I'm going to tell and preach perseverance, I better, better be able to act the part myself. Sure. But l- luckily for me and luckily for people I've been around, what being Ranger, of course, perseverance every day, um, being a, a man of God. Hey, man, I read my Bible every day. Bible is about perseverance and accepting adversity and overcoming obstacles. It's not difficult to do. And I have a wonderful wife and a wonderful family that that are doing they're doing more than their share now to take care of me so i you know i'm very lucky that i have that so it's it's easier for me to you know to deal with this but you're you're right i i running is awesome i i'm running this time of year in kansas is beautiful because it's perfect it's like 80 very low humidity and it's sunny out no wind um the fall in in the midwest is is beautiful so yeah it sucks but that's all right doing 100 crunches on my bed i'm Got my kettlebells on the floor, doing my kettlebell presses, and I'll figure out something to do. But to me, this is the opportunity to build myself back up. I've tore myself down. Let's build yourself back up even better than you were before. The $6 million man, be better than you were before. And so that's that's how I look at it. And I don't look at it as, man, I can't run because, yeah, that probably would put me in a little bit of a depression or down. I, I can't run. Okay, so what? what? What can I do? Well, let's do that until I can run. And then when I can run, let's build myself back up to to the levels I was before and even before, even higher than that. So this is just an opportunity to rebuild, in my opinion. That's just how I see it. Yeah. The other thing I'm wondering is, I mean, I think people listen to this show for inspiration. They hear stories of inspiration from the guys that we've yeah, interviewed. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering for you, do you think back to any of the guys that we interviewed? I mean, we interviewed John Keyes recently, came back from an injury. And then even worse, we've interviewed Mike Schlitz and we've, yeah. and we've interviewed Matt Waters and guys who have lost limbs yeah. in combat and come <laughs> back to fight in other ways. Do, do those stories of guys that we've interviewed yeah. inspire you? All of them. Uh, every one of them, because uh, to me, I feel like I'm in that group, in that in that brotherhood of of Ranger Seals, Delta Infantry. Doesn't matter. I'm that's that's the that's the persona we all should have, and that's why I hope we're reaching those kind of guys that are maybe down in the dumps to be like, hey, dudes, or dudes or dudettes. <laughs> hey, you, you, Ninja we, Turtle. We, yeah, we exactly. Yeah, we are we are all in that group. So yeah, every one of us should be inspiring each other to be better. Not a competition. It's that every one of us needs to hold those high standards because that's what we joined up for. And that's the brotherhood and sisterhood that we joined. So yeah, brother, every damn one of them. I'm like, I'm not going to quit. Would Matt, did Matt quit when he got his leg blown off in the firefight? No. Did Mike quit when he burned half his body? No. More than that, you know, yeah. did, did any of them quit? Did Scotty, did he quit when he died on the drop zone? And he hit in and then he burned in and he became a PJ again. No, he didn't quit. I'm not going to quit. You never quit on the most important thing. And this is not a selfish thing, but it is. I think it is true. We do everything. We never quit, never quit on anything. And then we quit on ourselves. We quit on probably the most important thing in the world. No, that's not what we were taught to do. So uh, we were taught to continue to persevere and fight on till you can't fight on anymore. And that's when you have no breasts left done or 
you're 90 and you're sitting on your porch and you're finally just that Clint Eastwood, get off my lawn. I'm just relaxing now, drinking my Tonto vodka for the rest of my life. That's okay. You lived a great life. But brother, yeah, I, they every one of them that we've had on inspires me. And that's why we have them on because I want to hear their stories. And that's why I wrote the Patriots Creed. That's an inspiring book of other people sure. doing that. And it was great to actually hear a lot yeah, of which several stories. of those guys are in there. Alan yeah. Cash and a yeah, lot, Alan, a lot of Alan Cash, stories. Scotty's in there, Israel Matos, another tremendous. Oh, we, and we, we need to get him on. But they yeah. all do, dude. They they all definitely inspire me to continue on because they're spot they continue to persevere. I'm not going to quit if they're if they didn't quit. I, I'm part of that brotherhood and I'm not going to quit either. So no, it's not, I'm not going anywhere. This will be healed up in three to six months. We'll give it six months at the longest. And, and then I'll be out running, running and, and doing <laughs> nice. all my stuff again. So yeah, I'm rock and roll. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I, w- I was ready for them to cut on me yesterday when I went and saw my consult. Yeah. He's like, yeah, we, we just can't go that quick. Tremendous doctor over there. But I said, well, I brought my day bags. So if you wanted to slice and dice on me today, you can do it. Let's get it done. And he's like, oh, we'll get it done probably next week is what's going to happen. It's just crazy because I feel like you probably would never have imagined that this would happen now. I mean, you've been through combat. <laughs> you've been through stuff as a contractor, as an army ranger where you were doing stuff at probably 10 times the physicality of what you did that day. And I'm sure you didn't think any injury would happen. And and you're also someone who's pretty safe. You know, you work out constantly, but at the same time, you're like, hey, I'm not going to push to this certain limit because yeah. I'm aware of my age. I'm not an army ranger anymore. You know? <laughs> I know. And, and I, I think you you've acknowledged that. So it's just yeah, it's it's got to be. I, I'm sure it just was completely unexpected to you. This is probably a piece of cake the first couple of days. What well, it, it is. That's why I'm there. And and I've done that show repelling. And for again, for all you guys out there thinking you're going in the military, that's something that we don't do a show repelling. We, it's not part of an operation. We don't. It, you do it for trust. You do it for fun. You know, you do it when you're going through training because it's it's your, it, it builds your confidence. But operationally unless you're coming straight down off a helicopter and you're shooting gun like John Wick or whoever does that now, which you don't do. It's very <laughs> rarely do you do that. So, but the Australian repelling is, yeah, I, I've done. And we used to make our own Swiss seats out of sling rope. We didn't have actually repel girdles. We actually made them out of rope and we didn't have the fancy gear that we did today. So no, of course I didn't. And, and you shouldn't ever go into anything thinking that, Oh my gosh, I'm going to break a leg. Oh my, I mean, Take the precautions, do your risk assessment. I had a tremendous rappel master there, Trinity. You know, I follow him. He's on long shot something on Instagram. Sorry, Trinity, but tremendous instructor. And he is a tremendous motivator as well. I knew I was in safe hands. I know how to restrain and rappel. I'm not scared of heights. I love facing straight down. Leading. I mean, it just was awesome. It just is one of those things. I stepped. I stepped and my knee, and my knee gave. I mean, what can you do? What that what that is telling me too is God is also saying, "Hey, um, hey, fifty one years old, buddy, <laughs> you, you need to you need to ratchet it down." Because the first one was great, and and you know, but it, it's hard to not do it again because that's it. Australian repelling is fun when you yeah. get you it repelling in itself is fun. And, and so nine times out of ten, you probably would have been completely fine. Well, I've I've done that same step and jerk before, and I've, I've been fine, and yeah. and it just. It's just one of those things where I just stepped the wrong way. It's just like a football player stepping in the grass, making a turn, his cleats cleats catching the turf, and he pops his knee. I mean, it's just we, we are breakable. As much as we want to think we're unbreakable, we we are. We're breakable, and, and shit happens, and so what? That's what I say. Hey, shit happens. Deal with it. This is yeah. where I'm supposed to be. Let's let's do it. And I've got a lot of speaking events coming up in the next three months, and all I'm thinking to myself is every time – 
you know, somebody gets up on stage, Matt, you know, Matt Waters, he's a great mentor of mine. He was a mentor when he, when he had both legs at Ranger Battalion, he was a mentor sure. of mine, sure. but I see him out there every day walking the beat, you know, with one leg. I'm like, fuck, I can go up on a stage with the cast for an hour. You know, I talk to people about adversity. I'm going to be fine. Cause uh, that's why I really didn't, I haven't said really until now, probably a lot of people don't know, unless you've seen a few of pictures out there with me and crutches or if you're on the e3 firearms website i do get more intimate with the members there because but you know it is a safe space for firearms people so i feel like hey man you guys can get more into my life than instagram and facebook and yeah so and instagram is certainly not a safe space for yeah. firearms as, <laughs> no. as i posted about um recently <laughs> i know it's but, a good post dude that was actually i love that well i that mean it's awesome. just it's just there's something weird going on because of the fact that they're taking down posts from like a year ago and i'm like how are they even digging these up yeah. why are they digging these up there's something very strange going on i don't want to harp on it too much but uh i i do at least want to mention and we're going to talk about this in depth the next two episodes because it's very important but Today is September 1st. This month is marking 10 years since, I would say, you know, it's safe to say the most significant yeah. event of your life. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it was um, another thing where it's unexpected. You know, that's why these little things like the legs or you hurt something, it's unexpected. If you can adjust and you can handle the little things like this when something like that happens in your life, not an attack, but something extremely traumatic that you're not expecting, a car crash, you may get assaulted, attacked, so, it's it's unexpected you know you can recover from it it builds you stronger so yeah that night was unexpected um but you know we had we we knew what we needed to do we had a great team i had a team of tremendous leaders you know boone roan jack and tig and oz and i i think the the funny thing that people don't understand is that they thought we all got along we didn't we really did me and oz really don't we don't like each other now we didn't like each other then too much i mean we tolerated each other but we had a healthy respect for each other and each one of us knew what jobs we needed to do we stayed within our lanes and we did it correctly uh, as best we could under the circumstances and um, no, it, to me, it came out. Yeah, we, we lost lives. They, they had us outgunned. I mean, that's just how it was. They had bigger guns than we did, but we only lost four. God bless them, Rustin. But um, you know, to me, we saved over two dozen. So I think, I think to uh, to me, it, it, it I don't want to say it's a win, but it we we it could have been worse. And I don't want to say it was success either, but it just could have been worse. Uh, and and it's going to stick with me forever. The sights, the sounds. I mean, I still see them every day. It, that'll never go away. I, I still see the flash when Roan, I saw Roan and Bub die when they got hit. I, I still, I still remember the fires. I still remember some of the conversations, you know, on the walls and, and looking at the 17 Feb guys <laughs> with Boone and, and going to climb over that first wall. And he's like, Hey man, do you trust these guys? And I said, Ford's a fire team, brother. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, well, just don't make sure you don't shoot us in the fucking back. He said <laughs> to one of them, but you know, it was those humor things where I'm giggling and climbing over walls and, and then just the firefights themselves, which are incredible. I mean, under night vision firefights are, are wow. Just intense. And it reminds me of like a boxing match, you know, where the old sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, bunch of bah, 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 and then there's a wall and this is bah, 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 and then it's a wall and you just it's, it's just amazing to see the lights under that and under your night vision uh tremendous so uh yeah buddy it, it'll it'll always be there it'll never go away i don't i don't want it to go away i know it won't go away i'm not going to try to go have it go away i just live with it yeah. and draw the positives out of all of that and 
you know, that's why, again, the knee, I guess, you know, be, after being in something like that and being injured so many times and going through ranger school, which is diversity in itself, or going through, get kicked out of the military, divorces, all yes and yes, my knee's no big deal. Sure. <laughs> it's like, yeah. So, so, so it, but um, I, I just want to make sure Roan and Bub are, are completely honored. And, and same with Chris and Sean, but I say Roan and Bub because Roan fought with me that night. Bub came over, one of the few guys that volunteered out of the GRS guys to come over to help us, which says, and, and Bub was a, Bub was obviously, we've talked about him a lot. Bub was a hero and he was a cur courage up the wazoo. So it didn't surprise me. He was the one guy, one of the few guys out of the four GRS guys that came from Tripoli. They had like 16 of them there. He was one of the four that volunteered to come over, you know, and sure. And, and it didn't surprise me. He was the only one to actually come up on the rooftops to supplement our positions out of all the GRS and the Delta two Delta guys that came over. Cause that's, that was his, that's him. That, that's what that's, he was, he's always looking to get in a fight, not to get in a fight for the fight itself, but to, to help to yeah. be, a, does, yeah. Yeah. Does it, does it feel like 10 years? Does it feel no. longer? Does it feel shorter? I mean, your life has changed so dramatically over these 10 years from when I met you, which is in 10 years, probably more like yeah. eight years, but yeah. to now, I mean, you had no, the, the thing that I think makes you different than a lot of guys we have on the show is that or even just people in the special ops military world when you hear of guys like david goggins or jocko they had a certain goal that they wanted to be a public figure they wanted to write a book they wanted people to hear their story which there's nothing wrong with um but i think in your case you did not have that goal you just uh, wanted to be an army ranger contractor and whatever else the future held uh, yeah. you got thrown into this and yeah. and it, it has completely changed your life the past 10 years yeah brother um i i i had no qual i i i, I like the sexiness of being behind the scenes <laughs> i think a lot of us did you know i think boone was the same way i think tig was the same way as well i think everybody within the GRS community for the most part is like that they're just although and and sean uh lake talked about this glenn doherty was a guy who wrote a <laughs> book with brandon webb yeah he, and he probably would have been a guy in the media he may have been different I, and he would have been very good at it you know good looking dude very good yeah. <laughs> very well spoken and he would have been awesome at it um but i think that's that's yeah no i i didn't it was that was a hell of an adjustment and we talk about it man i wanted to kill myself when all that was going on it didn't look like that on the outside but on the inside i'm like this is not what I want to do i this is not the person i want to be i never wanted to do this i never want to be this person out front doing the being the being the spokesperson or whatever. And then we had other you know, it was me, me and Tig and Oz, but it just did never feel comfortable for me because that's not what I wanted to do. You but, almost wanted to be, I guess you would say, like a whistleblower. You just wanted uh, to blow the whistle on that this is what really happened, and yeah, that was it, right? And and yeah, because you know, I, I know I wanted to at least have the truth come out, whistleblower, if that's what we call it. But that was after a year of them actually the story getting even more misconstrued, misconstrued. It was it was for all of us and not just me, everybody there. I don't think there was one of us on the team that said, ah, let's go write a book because we kept working except for us because his arm had been almost sheared off. He was at Walter Reed, but the rest of us kept working. I don't think people realize that. And, and all the trolls are like, oh, you guys just want to write a book. Bullshit. We all went to Yemen and Tig went to Lebanon. No, we didn't want to. write. We had no qualms about that. We had no no idea of that. A book. And it's after that full year of us being behind the scenes and just seeing the story continually being misconstrued, making the right took it and wanted to attack the left with it. And then the right, for the most part, in their defense, they got a lot of it correct, right? Yeah. The left wanted to continue to say it was, no, this is a conspiracy. What difference does it make? It pisses you off, dude, especially when you gave your life 
in defense of this country. We're over there because, hey, Obama and Hillary, you wanted us there to put weapons into other. You wanted us there to destabilize nations. We're doing this for you. At least you could do is recognize the attack, honor Roan and Bub with the correct honors they should be given, which is the goals they should be given that star for bravery, the highest award you can get as a civilian. I mean, shit, you give that to your vice presidents and your presidents every day, whether yeah. they're shit, whether they do a shit job or not. And you and you and stop calling it a conspiracy. That's what I think got the most of this is when the agency was going with it, that narrative, and the president, former President Obama, was calling it a conspiracy. And then the what difference does it make? That yeah, that that to say that didn't have an effect when we saw that didn't piss us off. It 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 did. Um, and it was saying behind the scenes too. So it was like, you know what, it really wasn't, you know, the, the, yeah, it wasn't, Hey, let's go do a book and all this. That was just what we thought would be the best way to get it out. So it was non, it was apolitical. We did say, Hey, let's go on the news. Let's do CNN or Fox. What do you think? And we're like, and we are all around together in a Ritz in the Ritz Carlton in, in Tyson's quarter. I remember it. And we're sitting around and we're like, and this is after the memorial ceremony for Ron and Bub. And to add insult to injury, they made us sign a new non-disclosure. The third non-disclosure I'd signed in six months, which you only sign one every two years. They made me sign another one. The day of the the day before, I mean, the, the hour before we were supposed to do the memorial ceremony. And then they put us behind a big fucking pole at Langley. The ceremony's up front. So where do you put the guys that were with thrown above? Oh, you put them behind a pole so they can't see shit. I mean, oh, yeah, I was so pissed. And then we get up to the Ritz and, and, and you know, the, we could feel the passive aggressive threats come at us from the hires, from the, from the chiefs. And I just remember, I remember Jack going, man, that was fucked up, wasn't it? And this is Jack. Jack is like John Krasinski. Seriously, their personalities, they are, Jack doesn't get riled up over nothing. And he's pissed. And we're like, what do we do? And I had remembered at that time that I had protected, and I did, I actually protected executive producers for CNN. Sure. Sorry, sorry, Fox Zealots. I did. I, I made sure they were safe when they went to Afghanistan. And I had one that was, she was awesome. I'm not going to give you her name because I don't know if she wants me to, so I'm not going to do it. But she'd written a book about Eric Prince. And I knew that because you know, I'd been working for Blackwater. I knew who she was. Um, and I protected her actually during her book writing to go visit Eric in Afghanistan to get material I've, in between my GRS contracts. So I, I, I said, well, what do we do? You said, well, we can't do the news because it's going to get politicized left or right. The only way to get it out correctly is let's do a book. And I called her. I didn't tell her what it was for. I knew it was OPSEC. I couldn't say, talk about my non-disclosures. But I said, hey, there's a story that we have. I think think the world's going to need to know about it. We're, we want to tell it. This is the best way we can do it without it getting politicized right off the bat. And she goes, stop. Let me give you this number. And she gave me a number of a clearance lawyer. His name Mark Zaid. I like him. I, I love Mark. I thought he was a great guy. He's a left left leaning son of a bitch, but I thought he treated us extremely well. And I still consider him a friend, but I called Mark. He's a security clearance lawyer. And he said, all right, I got this. And he took the ball. So we did it the right way. We didn't just jump out like no easy day, which honestly had nothing classified in it. But, um, no. but, um, but yeah, we got hammered. Matt, Matt Bishonet, Matt, yeah. 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 So, and that's, that's how it was. So we just, we did the book and, and. Here I am, and I, but I'm doing the best I can with it. I still want to put 110%, no matter what it was. So when the book came out and the public, public figureness came out, 
I always give 110%. So I'm going to give 110% for this. And what does that get you? It gets you an HD vision sunglass commercial. That's what it does. <laughs> That's a funny, it's a funny transition there. But I, I also will say, speaking of books, I mean, Sarah Adams has a book coming out yeah. and, and we're really excited to talk about that. So um, before we get her on Fort Scott Munitions, and I actually... I, I did get one of these tins because I just oh, saw they give, Yeah, they make some cool they didn't, no, they tins. Give me. I, I bought it. I wanted it. <laughs> oh, dude. Well, I got I got an old 14th hour when they made of me like made it. Oh, that. nice. It's, it's signed. I, I just I loved them. So I was like, I got to pick one of these up. So, yeah, I, I picked one up. They're great for any guys who just want it on display or want it for the range or both. Um, they're awesome and they're you got the, the discount, right? You better have got the yeah, discount. Yeah, of course they oh, use battle line. Uh, gotta right. gotta <laughs> just use our own discount. So Fort Scott Munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition. It's designed to tumble upon impact their trademark in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring that you receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in all 50 states. Also, you just go right to the website, fsm.com. You can get the tins like that, t-shirts, hats, all different types of cool stuff. When you use our promo code BATTLELINE, you're going to get 15% off. That's exclusive to us. So fsm.com, promo code BATTLELINE, only available to listeners of the podcast. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, BATTLELINE Tactical, and the BATTLELINE podcast. Also, uh, we're talking about how this month we're commemorating 10 years since the attack in Benghazi. And this audience knows that one of the brave guys who was there that we lost is none other than Glenn Doherty, mm -hmm. Glenn Bub Doherty. And because of Glenn Bub Doherty, Sean Lake created the brand Bub's Naturals, collagen protein, MCT oil powder. And it's inspired by him because Glenn was an athlete himself and Glenn worked out with Sean and was always trying to find the edge to be better, to be the best version of himself, to get his uh, health in order and to get make fitness a priority. And that's why... We use their stuff, all of it. The uh, apple cider vinegar gummies, Fountain of Youth formula. Um, so yeah, check them out, guys. BubsNaturals.com. Promo code BATTLELINE for 20% off. And I'm sure you'll be drinking it during this recovery as oh, you're yeah. taking painkillers yeah, no, and stuff, right? It's, I'm gonna do every day. I stay on that collagen, man. It It's great. It's just amazing when you're my age and my fingers are still growing. I got all my hair. I actually, you're, you I'm, mean your fingernails? You said finger, finger. Oh, did I say fingers growing? That's I, guess, I don't think that, your fingers are that, still growing. That's the codeine, guys. I'm sorry about that. Man. But fingernails are growing, and I, yeah, definitely it's going to help in recovery. You know, it's helped with joint joint repair and ligament repair, and the collagen is good for all that. So yeah, every day. And guys, it is it is by far the best best collagen out there. And the MCT oil, it, it makes the coffee taste good, and it's just easy piece of cake. So yeah, guys, you're missing out. Take the collagen protein. Get it in your system, and while you're doing it, support the Glendora Memorial Foundation, which Bubs gives back to with uh, with purchases. And uh, yeah. Sean, Sean, you're the man, brother. Appreciate. And it, they buddy. give back. They give back ten percent. They don't just give back a small percentage. They're giving back ten percent of everything to the Glendora Memorial Foundation, which is helping 
family members of veterans, of, of fallen veterans in many cases, special operations, military veterans, get their education, education. go through yep. school. And Sean truly is a very charitable guy. I mean, we were just yeah. talking about uh, all the stuff that the State Department went through when these guys died and, and the stuff that you guys went through. Sean has talked about it before. When Gwen Doherty uh, died, the government didn't pay for that funeral. Yeah. It was Sean Lake and, and Brandon Webb, who I know, and, and friends of yeah. Glenn who paid for it. And and it, this company is definitely devoted to giving back and helping guys like Glenn, of which there are plenty of guys out yeah. there like him in the SEALs, in the Army Rangers, who would have been there with you in Benghazi, yep. no matter the circumstances. Nah, there's too many. Sean's doing great things, and he's still still working hard being part of that group that's trying to get Glenn and Roan the uh the gold the i think it's called the gold medal the the medal for heroism with the uh, with the uh highest highest medal you can get within the united states government without being in the military the, so it's the highest civilian medal and they deserve it because they, they they sacrifice themselves I, I i still can't believe that's even being challenged but that shows the politics but that's how sean sean has a book is a pit bull man you politicians out there, you're not going to win. He's not going to let go. He's going <laughs> to hang on until you get those guys what they deserve. And that's that's the highest award a civilian could get for heroism in the United States. And Sean, you're you're an awesome brother. And the product speaks for itself. It's 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 amazing. It's amazing. And I've been continuing to take it till the day I die. Literally. Absolutely, man. Bubsnaturals.com promo code battleline for 20% off. That's the best, uh, that's the best offer you're gonna get. So bubsnaturals.com promo code battleline. Sarah, what's going on? Holy shit, are you like in Switzerland? You look like you're in the Dutch this is the Alps or something. Look I at, wish look I was in Switzerland. Are you kidding me? <laughs> so yeah, okay. So we're both bedrooms here. I'm in the bedroom because I can't move. You're in the bedroom because that actually is a pretty cool. Yeah, we, well, we might as well include place. this in here because I don't think does Sarah even know that you have a major oh. injury or yeah, I, I really did not know that. I just thought maybe you were old and can't move around. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I mean that's part of it. Yes, and yes. So yeah, well, let's 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 rock. Let's do this. Well, you're not gonna mention it. I mean, she, she might or, be or are we on? Are we on? Are we recording? We're recording, whatever. Oh, okay, I mean, cool. Yeah. You know. No, I just I, 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 I kind of care what's wrong with you, so go no, for it. No, I was just uh I was just um it was my last, I was, I was teaching a course, uh, repelling and I was demoing the last, I was there. I wasn't expecting them to do it, but they wanted to see a de- uh, Australian repel did the first one. Fine. I should have stopped there. Cause it was the end of the day. But of course I'm like, fuck it. That was fun. Let's do one more. And it was on the Slack side. So the, the, so the Slack came out. I still think the Bolet guy was, no, nah, I, I don't want to say that. I, I just, I, I don't, cause he's, yeah, he's awesome. You. That's what happened. It, it was my fault. It, it just seemed too tight. So when the slack hit, it hit too early than I expected. Mm. And I tried to let out. So I just go and just, and it didn't go anywhere. And my, I just, it threw me back on the wall. Caught with my right leg, right leg was fine. And then I stepped with my left leg and the left leg just went and no, no tendons anymore. No MCL, no quadriceps. So I got to go get surgery and get it all reattached. And probably the quad tendons probably going to get uh, screwed into my kneecap. But it is what it is. And I, like you said, it's because getting old. This is what it is right here. So, and you have yeah. very skinny legs. It's like they're almost too I have, skinny. I have, but they're strong. I have super strong legs. My legs are skinny, but I'm wiry, wiry. I got wiry. It is funny you say that, though, because I think I told you, Chris, the time that I have the picture of us at SHOT Show working out, my mom saw the picture of me, you in the gym, and my my mom, who didn't even know you, was like, he's got really skinny legs. Skinny legs, that's (laughs) right. That's what my my wife said saying. She goes, your legs are just going to get skinnier and skinnier. 
I don't care what I do with my legs. I, I can run, I can squat. They will always stay. They'll get more powerful, powerful, but they don't get any bigger. They don't get any bigger. And the one time I did try to get them bigger, I couldn't run for shit. No, it's it. going to, of course, I think I, you kind of sacrificed I hate that. It. But, so, but so, yeah, I'll, yeah, I was just going to say, I'll give Sarah an intro. I just figured I'd mention it as well. I mean, for yeah. one, just so she knows what's up with you, but yeah, we were originally going to have to like change this interview time, but I, yeah. I said, let's just figure it out before I call Sarah and luckily you're able to be here, yeah. albeit on some type of painkillers, but I wouldn't know. You, you seem fine. Um, but to give Sarah an introduction. So Sarah Adams served on the select committee on Benghazi, yeah. has many years of experience in government intelligence. I mean, you gave me your whole background. It'd be a lot of accolades to go through and we'll probably get into some of it. Um, more recently volunteered in providing aid to Ukraine um, as the COO of the Ukraine NGO Coordination Network, NGO non-government uh, organization. And the big thing right now that we'll get into is that you're the co-author of an upcoming book, Benghazi, Know Thy Enemy, which is coming out soon. And actually, I think a, an interesting thing to start with is, Chris, like there have been so many books put out about Benghazi. And yeah. I feel like in many times just capitalizing on what you guys have done, yeah. what you already said in 13 hours. So for you to say, let's get Sarah on, this might be the first book that's about to come out that you really co-sign yeah. as this is something people should pick up. And it's not just let's make money off a of tragedy. Well, no, I, and I've known Sarah for how many years? Shit. We started Kabul 2006, maybe is where I first met you. 2006, 2007. I, know, I remember is working out in gyms with you and you wore those little silkies. I hope you still don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I do. But shut, it's all right. I, my, my legs still work because they're skinny. I got sexy legs, you know, they're shorn. I'm good. But no, I, Sarah, because I know Sarah, I know what her work is. Um, can I say, we can say that you were a targeter. I just said it. So we got to be able, you know, she was a targeter and she'll tell you all about what that is. And we'll get into that, but I, I trust her. And, you know, she, she, I don't know what happened. She just, she should have been there that night, to be honest with you. She was one of our targeters in Benghazi. She was our only targeter in Benghazi. And you, you had just been gone to Tripoli for the night or something? Wasn't that you just, you just. Yeah, I went up to Europe for a meeting. Um, Europe for a meeting. That's, that's why you all had to get up so early that morning. I that's right. We had to take your dumb ass to the airport. <laughs> I was fucking tired. Um, but, you know, that, the, that's what she does. She finds bad guys. She finds bad guys so we can action on them. We, I, that's the fancy word for saying we can go get, go apprehend them or kill them. All right. But, and so this book, when she says she was writing it, I know there's stuff in there that I probably don't even know that I, I don't know all the attackers. I have no idea. And I, what I love about this, and so I think it's important to have her on is that with this kind of stuff, I believe Sarah and Sarah can honestly close some holes as far as the government's involvement and what they did and didn't know. I know you're not going to get into a lot of that in the book, but it's still with who attacked that allows us to know, well, who were they really working for? Was 17 Feb our friends? No, you know they weren't. But she knows that. But that was the big narrative. Oh, no, no, no. They're, they're the friends. They helped us when, I, and I'm not going to give up her book away, but I know a lot of this can, at least for me, I can say, yeah, you motherfuckers, you lying sons of, and talking to the government, lying sons of bitches. You, you guys left us out to dry and then you tried to hide it with, within the, the militias that were happy to us, but, or were supposed to be friendly to us. So anyway, Sarah is fucking subject matter expert when it comes to this kind of stuff. That's what she did in the agency. And I think that's awesome too. I think it's honestly for any of our, our, and we do have some young, young, not many, but we have some young women that listen to the show. You can be a fucking cool person 
you could be like Sarah out there actioning terrorists to get them killed and to just to say, you know, to protect the United States of America. And, and that's what she's done. And, and then she, she was the one person. And now this, uh, this is the last, last thing I'm going to give you last kudos, sir. Sarah was the one person that actually stood up for us and she'll can tell you what happened if she wants to about because she stood up for us and believed what we said and didn't believe the narrative that the chief and all them were pushing it. She could tell you what happened. But to me, that's commendable because she's the only one. She's the only one outside of the guys that were there. And even outside of that, there was one that was actually on the ground. that didn't do shit for us, but out of this contractor, she's the only one that stood up for us. And, and it, it, it cost her, honestly, I think it cost her her job. She may have another opinion. It was actually happened to her, but from what I understand, her 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 courage cost her 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 livelihood so when people say i'm not going to tell the truth because it cost me my job fuck you and then sarah can say the same thing fuck you too do the right thing you know and she did so anyway that is it with my spill for sarah but i i think sarah if you can can i just want to start like i don't even know how you got into the agency i don't know how you what what was your path i mean I, that's something that we start with from the beginning how did you decide you wanted to do that? I mean, did you want to in high school? Did you want to in junior high? When did it was like, oh man, I think I want to go work for the agency. I mean, what was your, what was your thoughts? What, what were you drinking or smoking when you decided that? Yeah, it's going to be super random. So it was the night I was supposed to be preparing to defend my thesis in grad school. And instead of preparing to defend my thesis, I was like, oh shit, I wrote a thesis on cashmere. What the hell am I going to do with my life? So instead of preparing, I'm like, I guess I'm going to apply to the CIA. Who else would hire me? So I actually went online and applied that night to the CIA. And then that was the night before Halloween. And they called me in December for my first interview. So it went well, pretty quick after that. What, what year was that when you did that? That would be 2015. Holy crap. Okay. 2015. Wait, 2015. Wait, 2005. 2005. Thank you. I was like, holy shit. Yeah, I was like, that was the only one. I wouldn't get trained all night. I'm sorry. I are, really don't sleep much. Are, are you on Are you on codeine too right now? <laughs> I wish. I wish. <laughs> but when, when you did that happen, because you know, most men just don't apply and get in. It, what, what, just because you had your master, your graduate, wait, you, you're doing your, your dissertation or your thesis? My thesis was on cashmere. Actually, in my first interview, they sent someone from the Pakistan Afghanistan department. And she okay. basically said they were interested in me because it was rare to find people who are cashmere experts. Wow, so so um, I just had a great niche at the time. So what so what happened after that? I mean, how does that process go? I don't know. You honestly, contractors, you just can't apply. When we were getting we were getting picked, it was like, hey, do you want to do it? How do you so how does that work? You just apply, it's like applying for a job at Costco? I mean, yeah, you, you basically go online, they let you choose three different careers within the CIA you can apply for at once. You go to the interview. If you pass the interview, they give you a conditional offer. You do the background check, your polygraph. And then if you pass all that, they give you a hire date. So what was the interview like with you were in? Actually, I had a five-minute interview because my interviewee had the flu and nobody realized to the last minute that he had an interview that day. So another woman who was like another branch chief in the same office he was in was like, I'll run and do it. She came and said, I'm sick too. I don't want to get you sick. And we seriously had a five minute discussion. And I was like, well, I think maybe that's good. But I was a little um, nervous that maybe I just crashed and burned and they were kind of box checking as a government interview. So yes, it was a little uncertain, but yeah, it all worked out. Did, did it take a while after you were done? How many weeks after, or did you get a call right away and say, hey, we want you. And then was it report to Williamsburg? 
report to Camp Perry, or was there some some secret envelope that you got on your car and said with the with the gold star or something that said, "Hey, you're hired. Report to this block on at 9 a.m. on the second of November or whatever it was." No, it's way more stressful than that. So they called me beginning of June, said, "Hey, you can start anytime you want." I picked like the last Monday of the month. I actually they make you drive straight into headquarters your first day, so. I, I had to go through security. Like I, I was lost, right? I parked in the parking lot. I had no idea where the doors were. Um, so yeah, they, they just throw you right into the lion's den and you gotta like think until you make it. And that, you know what? I tell you guys, if you've never been in Langley at the headquarters there, that parking lot is huge. You, I remember parking all the way at the very end of one of the fucking parking lots. I felt like, did, did they start having shuttles that you could ride there? I had to walk all the way. It felt yeah, like I walked like two miles. If you're going overseas, they make you part in dirt lots. Dirt like lots. <laughs> There's a plane in the parking lot. I mean, it's a strange place if you had to go there your first time. But it is, you know, when you walk in the first time and you see the, the emblem on the floor, the unit insignia, it, it is pretty cool the first time. After the first time, okay, I'm over it. And then going to get in the Starbucks down the down the hallway there. That was actually pretty cool too. Whenever, but yeah, what was your feeling when you walked in? Were you like, okay, I made it, or you're like, ah, ah, all right, well, let's just it's just a job. Let's just see what's what's next. Well, I think like most people, right? You walk in and see all the cool stuff, like you said, and you yeah. feel a little bit of imposter syndrome. But that went away quickly when I rounded the corner, and there was a line of over two hundred people, and I was like this is crazy. What's going on? So I get to the front of the line. It's the line for Dunkin' Donuts. I started the day at the CIA, the day the Dunkin' Donuts opened. So it was like a national holiday that day. For people that don't know, if you've, again, never been in, they have a middle section where they had a Starbucks, they had the Dunkin'. What else did they have? It was like a, it's like, oh my gosh. Like a Severo maybe. Severo pizza. It was (laughs) was crazy. Um, Well, you get in and then, you know, you're working. When did you your first was your first deployment then Afghanistan was that the first deployment or did you go head out to no Pakistan I got lucky first? my first deployment was southern Europe <laughs> so what did you do um basically I worked in a station doing analysis of so that- terrorists I was actually still kind of working Pakistani because I'm, I'm uh, as Chris knows most of my background before I got pulled over to Libya was Pakistani terrorists yep, so, yep. so the job still was related to Pakistani terrorists now, are you getting mentored? Because do you go right in as a targeter, or do you go in as something else? So you go as like a, like an an, an analyst, uh, or do you you hit they hit you right in there? Okay, go find the bad guys. Or do you have to get mentored for a year? How does that work? So yeah, I had a different path than a lot of people. I went in as an analyst and took the career analyst program, and then I crossed over to be a targeter and took the targeting officer certification course. So I've actually worked on in two different directorates in the CIA. Okay, got you. I did skip a little bit, and Ian, jump in here because I'm. This is stuff I don't know from. But you jump. No, in I mean I. I don't either. The, the only thing I'm wondering is, you know, because I, I think people here. All right, you go from just a standard kind of formal education yeah. to working at the CIA, and and people always do wonder, like, what is the personality type they're looking for? What is it about you that stands out to? I'm sure tens of thousands of other women just alone applying to the CIA. Yeah, I think one of the main things, um, you hear this a lot actually in the tech world, is they like someone who's scrappy, right? They like someone that say, hey, here's what you need to do. Just get it done. Like, don't ask a lot of questions. Like, don't bother me. Don't don't complain <laughs> if you fail a couple of times. 
just get the job done. And I think that's the type of personalities they look for because, you know, it's a tough place. You're going to, you're going to have a lot of bumps in the road. You know, you can't go home and talk about it and say, Oh, it was a really rough day. You know, <laughs> they want people who can kind of take the hits. Well, I, I, and I want to even bounce back because I, I think this is important because there's the aura of the farm, the farm. And I think the farm farm was like Disneyland to me because there was like bikes. They just leave beach cruises everywhere. You can just, it's like, you can just pick up one of these bikes and just ride it wherever you want and then put it wherever you want. Like, yeah, you can do that. But what was your experience going into the farm? And, and it's beautiful. It really is. I think they maintain it well, at least the times I was there. Uh, and it just felt like... Uh, it just felt like wonderland to me, but what was your feeling when you went to the farm and do you have any good stories from your time at the farm or, or I, Sarah's one that didn't mind arguing with people. So I'd like some argument stories with your instructors, <laughs> if you have any, but again, get, give the I don't farm have argument in, um, stories with my instructors, but one invited me to the pool at his house. And so that was like super creepy. <laughs> yeah, creepy. I didn't so. go, obviously, creepy. but no, you know, when I, the first time I went to the farm, you know, it has this mystique, but then what they do to you to ruin that mystique, and luckily the next times I went, I didn't get stuck, they stick you in like bunks. I am someone, I need perfectly dark room, no noise, I will murder someone if they're snoring, and they stuck me in a room with a bunch of people. Um, <laughs> and they put this stuff on the bed, I guess, if you're going to wet the bed, it won't go through, you know, like this plastic. So every time someone moves, it's like... <laughs> oh, you, yep, you've like, got you, the you got the pee sleep. Like my first week there, I was like, I'm going to lose my mind. Like, I'm going to go post though. Like, if this is a part of their hazing, they won. Like, they broke me. <laughs> so, yeah, not as exciting. But when I went back, I had a private room and the life was a little better. <laughs> so, what, so when you went back, does that mean when you went back to work or did you do you leave and then you come back? Well, so there's you... different kind of courses you can go there for. Okay. So the initial in-doc, is it an in-doc course or just your initial basic, here's what the CIA well, is? Well, when I actually first went down there, it was more for like the weapons and vehicle. Okay, gotcha. So it was to prepare me to go to a war zone when I first went. And what what were they shoot? What were you guys shooting? What were they? And actually, I taught some of those courses. Yeah, so we those are actually did, kind of fun. We just did Glock and M4, and then they let us play around with like some other kind of guns for fun. You know, we shot some like AK-74s and AK-47s. Yeah, yep, yep, yeah. I remember we used to do that at Blackwater ORE. We'd bring them in for to there, and we'd do all that stuff. That was fun. Um. All right, so you went, you're done, you're heading over to Afghanistan, or you head over, you went to Southern Europe, you're getting drunk, you're just hanging out all the time, doing some anal analyzing some stuff. And she's, she's shaking her head no to getting drunk. <laughs> no. I ate lots of pizza and gelato, so you figure out where maybe I was. <laughs> but um, once, when you found out, or again, were you applying to get to like, hey man, I need to get into the Middle East, this global on terror, this is what I signed up for. Um, or were you just, hey, whatever, uh, send me whatever, or were you actually pushing for it? Because a lot, I know a lot of a lot of them that were going over there were that were like this. That was their thing. They wanted to get that global war on terror notch on their belt. And was it like that? I mean, is that something that looks good on your resume that I got to get some time in in a war theater because it's going to help you with promotion? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, at a certain level, they need that war zone time. I mean, you know me, I don't really care about ladder climbing. I don't even yeah. know if I can ladder climb because I kind of burn bridges everywhere. Yeah, I know that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I was pushing to go. I think it was maybe about a year and I started deploying to South Asia and I did seven deployments there to include a one-year PCS. So yeah, I tried to live overseas. Um, I would have stayed there probably forever if they let me. No, you did. I remember you're always there. I think you ever went home. 
Um, before, and I do want to get into Libya because there's actually specific stuff about Benghazi and Tripoli because you worked in Tripoli. We were in Tripoli before, before Benghazi too. And those don't uh, even count in the seven deployments. Yeah, that's just the one theater. But yes, I did do two deployments to Libya. Yeah, yeah. you did. Um, Kabul and Afghanistan was big at the time. We were, we were doing a lot of work there. Do you have any story or anything that you're most proud of in Afghanistan that you, you caught that person you were looking for? That was the big fish. And what, if you did, what was that? And can you deal a little bit about how you got, got up to that point and then at, to the very end when he was actioned and you yeah. either apprehended or, or killed? I don't know if they were apprehended or killed. But yeah. Um, action. Yeah, he, he was a great success until a year ago. So, um, yeah, I basically caught the number two of the Taliban. His name was Mullah Abdul Ghani Barader. You know, he's still alive. He's, I think, now like the number three in their new government. Um, ironically, it's really funny. I spent, you know, much of a year looking for him. I actually got lucky and caught him. He was um, very difficult to get, but he had a son who stole one of his own old cell phones, turned it on, went on a trip with his dad, no one would believe me, right? Because I was like, hey, it's on. He's moving around. And they're like, he would never do that. And I guessed. I said, I think it's one of his kids. Um, it ended up being one of his kids. We wrapped him up. Um, he got detained. As most people know, he was the key interlocutor for Taliban reconciliation meetings. He brokered the deal that basically handed Afghanistan back over to the Taliban. So again, at the time when I caught him, I thought it was a great success. Now, not so much because, you know, he's a really great um, strategist. He's probably the last person we wanted negotiating with the gov U.S. government because I pro they probably did not know how intelligent he was and he played them for fools, which we actually saw last August. So kind of a failure, but I got him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's what we saw. Too. And I'd always say that with as far as the case officers, it's like, man, they, we're getting played. They're playing. The Iranians are playing you and getting money. Then the Chinese are playing and getting money. And then the Taliban's playing and getting money. And it just seems like they they never learn. It's like just because you're giving somebody money doesn't mean they're going to tell you the truth. They're going to tell you what you want to hear, but then they're just going to take the money and go tell somebody else what they want to hear. And it just seems to me like after watching, yeah, the, the complete debacle of the withdrawal Afghanistan. And when I saw the name too, I was like, holy shit. Because I remember you did Ken. I remember that was a big deal. I was like, holy shit. I remember reading that going, man. I swear to God, we caught this guy. What the <laughs> fuck is he doing negotiating? This guy's like, the, I know. He's, he's Osama bin Laden. I mean, literally, it was just without all the Saudi money, which they, I'm sure they'll have here eventually. But it just was unbelievable. What, when you saw that, what was your, I mean, seriously, what was your feeling? It was like, what the fuck is going on? Because you're out now. You, you're done. You're doing other things. When you saw that name, I mean, aside from, yeah, he's going to play us and he's going to win this fucking battle of, of battle of the wits. What else was going through your head? Did you feel like Afghanistan was a waste of time? Like, I know, and I get asked that question a lot too. So I, I just want to get your opinion on it. Or do you feel like we still we still did good things there while we were there? Yeah, it's kind of a two-part question. So the first part, the second I actually heard the state, the state department was negotiating with Parader, I actually tried to get in touch with the secretary of state because I wanted to explain to them how intelligent Breeder was. I actually never connected. No one made the connection for me. So I actually don't think they probably had a subject matter expert on Breeder who they discussed technique with before negotiating with him, which actually is a huge failure, right? Because very few yeah. people have actually met with him in the past. I spent every day with him six days a week. So they didn't actually tap into those of us who had relationships with him. So that, again, is a very big problem always in our government. 
And then, you know, Afghanistan's a tough one, you know, because I'm one of the people that said the second Bin Laden crossed Tora Bora, we, sh we should have left. I feel like we kind of moved the military in and then we kind of kept finding new reasons to stay there. Um, you know, because even when we, right before the right before the Taliban did take over, they still had more land control than they did in 2001. So, you know, I don't know if we did much better for Afghanistan in the 20 years. Now I do think we owe it to them because we told all these people, yeah. be more like our country, be like us. You're going to have all these freedoms. And now that got taken away from us. And now there's kind of an obligation. Hey, we helped kind of put them in the situation. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I've been working Afghan evacuations for the last year, actually. So I have a lot mm. of families, you know, I have families now in probably, I think, seven different countries in the world right now. So it's something that I'm pretty passionate about, but it, but it is a difficult problem set. Well, yeah, it, and you are. You, you helped me. Actually, the two people that you gave me some ideas, I, I went another direction, but because of you and getting the ball rolling, I, one I got out in this, the Netherlands and the other one I think is getting is in Canada or he's starting to get we're starting to get him to Canada. So, but I, I know because you you do. I mean, we have intimate relationships with the people that GRS does. Targeters really do. Because like you said, you you sit with people for six days where I may be with like a person. Yeah, I may go to the coffee shop for why I'm there, but I'm not in a room 24-7 trying to get details. And and so I so I always wondered, because you guys do put a lot of work in there. And then for us just to give it back. But I am in agreement with you. I, I'm not a big fan of overthrowing dictators and trying to nation build. I don't think that shit works. But I also agree with you that, hey, if we're going to go through a party at your country, then we stay till the party's cleaned up. We don't fucking just, hey, here's, but that's what we do as Americans. We go have the party, then we knock the house to shit, the country to shit, and then we leave and say, okay, you guys clean it up. And that's terrible. And I cannot believe they didn't contact any of you guys. There were subject matter experts on it. What, why, why was that? Why do you think, and that's a, that's a common thing within the government. Nobody wants to help each other because it is an ego. Is it stupidity? Is it ignorance? It, what is it? What's, why do they yeah. do that? I think a lot of it is ego. I think a lot of politicians like want to take control of something, especially if you're calling it like a peace process, right? They want to own that. They want their name on it. You know, they, they want that success. It's a very unfortunate thing because I, you know me, I wouldn't care if my name was on anything. Yeah, yeah. Like, stay yeah. under the radar. That's why I like that my name sounds fake. Um, so yeah, I do think probably some of it was ego. I think some of it was maybe just not even having the understanding, right? Because remember, the government changes over every two to four years. Yeah. We put people in positions that really haven't negotiated with terrorists. They haven't been in these high-level negotiations. They haven't been on the ground and like met these guys, know their sure. lies. So we really are kind of like throwing in the JV team in a lot of this stuff. Yeah. I want to make sure that we we get in, of course, to Benghazi. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we might we might fast forward a little bit, but when are you assigned to do something in Libya, and what was your experience with Libya? Yeah, sure. So it was in early January um, of 2012. I was contacted. I was given about a week's notice. They needed someone to come out to start capture operations in Libya. The interesting part is they had no approvals, legal approvals of any sort. So they asked me to come and actually make it happen because they knew I could probably steamroll the process. The funny part is I first went over to meet with the office and headquarters that work Libya. I had knew nothing about Libya. And they sat down with me and said, we're never gonna give you approvals. You're not gonna be even going on a capture operation, blah, blah, blah. You're not gonna get drones. Um, and I was like, well, that was a great meeting. And then I went overseas. I told the um, chief of station at the time when I arrived, and he's like, well, 
we'll show them. And we did, like, I think it was maybe a month later, we had a drone over the Capitol. Um, and then we started a month later, our capture operations. So and yeah, that, we got it running pretty quickly. That was, that was G-Man station chief, right? We won't say his whole name, but that was the good one. That was the job. Yes. That was, we did have I'm a really, with him. Great yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, we did have an actually really good station chief in Tripoli. Mm -hmm. He was an old jawbreaker fucking Mujahideen days, but of course we lost him before the attack. I think things would have went a lot differently for us if he would have been there. Yeah, we would have yeah. had fucking Spectre on I think on he station. left five days before the attack yeah. occurred and yeah. he was so connected in the region. Like we would have yeah. had every government sending people in, be the French, the Emiratis, the Italians. So yeah, it, that was a huge loss to us. Yeah, it was timing's everything, I'll tell you what. But yeah, as we go and you're in Tripoli at the time, actually I wrote about, and I didn't put her name in the book, but when I wrote about the, the uh, where two of the case officers got rolled up and me and Boone had to run out to help them, we were just coming back from Leptis Magna at the time, and you were in the car with us. Um, yeah. Yeah, there were. were and, and I, I jumped out of the car because you guys kept talking. It was actually you and Bob, and you were it, talking about your, yeah, it was you and Bob, and you were oh, like, the whole drive, it was like a 45 minute drive, and you're like, oh, when we get there, we're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and we shake these guys down. And they stopped the car, and I jumped out with my diplomatic passport, and I walked into Libyans. I'm like, I'm American. Why do you have my friends? <laughs> and they would, and they wouldn't roll their damn windows down. I couldn't remember. I was like, I can't remember who it was. But, yeah. <laughs> but that, it was, it was so, it was just the funnest the, the thing that I was like, I remember she jumped, I'm like, what the fuck is she doing? All right. Well, let's I can go. I you guys yelling at me through the armored vehicle that I. I jumped like, Jesus my <laughs> but it was they were so cool it was but you know it's like jesus christ here she goes again all right all right go out get out get out um but during that time which is in, in tripoli were you starting to see and because that was our time in tripoli and then we headed off to to uh to benghazi um were you starting to see the possibility of of a consulate or an annex getting attacked a u.s facility getting attacked what were you seeing what, what kind of report? Because you're you're privy to a lot more reports than me. Right. So what what was what was the what was the status? What was the what was going on in the office? And were we just ignoring those those possibilities, or were we just oblivious to it all and we weren't seeing it? Sure. Well, yeah. Remember when I first went in, there wasn't even a living intelligence service. They started like end of February, beginning of March. So even those first two months, terrorists were just pouring into Libya. They had no borders border control at all. Like you couldn't scan in a password report and it go into a system, like it didn't exist. So the funny thing is the US government was always sending us, hey, this terrorist is arriving country, this terrorist is arriving country, this terrorist is arriving. So we'd bring it over to like the prime minister of the minister of defense, right? And they would just stick it on a pile. They had no way to track these guys. They weren't even taking it serious, right? They didn't realize so many terrorists were pulling into their country. So yeah, I was very concerned about it at the time. We just didn't have the mechanisms in place to actually track and locate these guys. And then we ended up not knowing so much. Like, you know, when we were in Benghazi on Tonto, like Al-Qaeda had already established a base there. They started the end of 2011. Uh, well, I, I, rem I remember you you had something that me and Boone went out to do some surveillance on. It's that we got in trouble for it. We came mm -hmm. back and um, we saw what we thought was, was AQI because with the guy and we went and told you and then actually before you do you remember that do you remember us coming yep. back and bob bitching oh, tell yeah. tell a little bit because i so people uh -huh. believe me we went out to a, a rafala sahate it was supposed to be a rafala sahate camp you're and she's the one that sent us out to it. she's like hey i think we've got go go do surveillance on this or maybe she just wanted to get rid of us off the base because we were pesting i don't know 
But I remember we sat and we did see an AQI guy there. But yeah, about that incident in itself, because you're we're the ones that we you were put we we're doing it for you. You were said, hey, go go check this out, and we did. What was that day like? And after we came back and told you what we found, what did Bob say? What, what was his? What was? I know what he said to us. He said, "Don't ever do that shit again." That's not what we're here for. Yeah, yeah, it. yeah. For for some reason, Bob didn't want us to collect on terrorists and Benghazi. He only wanted us to collect on political reporting and some stupid thing called federalism. Um, but yeah, so there was really no push. There was even some terrorists I tried to push to get case officers to go recruit, and it was just not happening in Benghazi. We just did not have the right leader there. Um, so yeah. As you said, Bob pushes back on pretty much everything to go out and do anything. We actually have kind of even a section in the book of basically every time Bob didn't let um, GRS respond to security incidents involving Americans in town. I mean, it was just a constant problem with Bob. He just didn't have the experience. He had basically no counterterrorism experience. His only deployment ever was to one location in Afghanistan. He got sent home early for getting an asset killed and doing some weird money payoff that's, scheme. That's right. So again, he, yeah, I remember um, that. This wasn't the A-team, unfortunately. And what a lot of people don't realize is right after the Libyan revolution, for some reason, the US government thought Libya was safe. So they didn't declare it a war zone originally. So they couldn't staff it. So basically the CIA was staffing Benghazi, mostly with um, like temporary people, but they were taking people who'd been sidelined. So like one case officer we had in Tripoli, he was sidelined for making up reports in Iraq and one report actually almost led to a JSOC raid that they called off the last minute, which had no bad guy in the house. Another case officer in Tripoli, same thing, got in trouble for making up intelligence reports. That's how hard they had at times staffing Libya because it wasn't a war zone, so people basically weren't getting their pay. So we really did not have the best of the best in the country at the time, unfortunately. And they can just make up an intel report? And, and oh, yeah. We oh, actually bring up in the book um, an intel report made up about three or four days after the Benghazi attacks by a case officer in Tripoli about our attack. Wow. I, I, it's unbelievable. That shows no oversight. I didn't know that. Do I know that case officer? You can tell me offline. I'm going to go find that motherfucker. I told you. It's, it's she. You, you oh, probably, you it's she. Yeah, I, I know, I, I know, you know who the other person. You definitely know the other person in the meeting with her that assisted oh. in the the oh, yeah, yeah, she, so, yes. she, yeah, it's hearts, hearts and minds. She's still, yeah, hearts and minds. Yeah, exactly but I do want to jump back to your incident with the Rafal al-Sahati camp. Yeah, yeah, please. The interesting part is, you know, uh, we've been doing an investigation now for about eight years into the attackers, but we did not know at the time when we were in Benghazi that the gentleman running Rafal al-Sahati, his name was Mohammed. We'll just, we won't do last names for just the confusion of it all. So we used to meet with him. We met with him. The, everyone knows he met with the State Department, you know, a couple of days before the attacks. He's one of the guys that said, we can't ensure security anymore. He was actually the senior Al-Qaeda commander in Benghazi at the time. And then when you bring up AQI, you're correct. So the lead trainer for all the Al-Qaeda terrorist, terrorist camps in Benghazi in 2012 was a well-known Al-Qaeda in Iraq terrorist. His name is Bubakar Hakim. He was finally killed um, in, like several years ago in um, a drone strike. I want to say it was in Syria, but he'd been involved in like the French attacks, like Charlie Hebdo. So yeah. very well-known terrorist, but he was running all the Al-Qaeda training while we were there. So that's probably who you saw. Wow. Yeah, I, I remember the hair on the back of my neck stood up. I was like, shit, that, that's a hardcore AQI guy right there. 
Well, he's scary. He's scary looking as shit. Yeah, he did. So go on. You're you're there. We're going on. Now, you were supposed to be, you actually were our targeter in Benghazi at the time. Tell people what happened. I mean, they moved you out. You went to Europe. Were you still monitoring what was going on there to us? And and then when that night happened, so let's even get into that. What was the first time you heard that we were under attack and what was going on in your head? Yeah, so I only left, was supposed to only leave Benghazi for one day. I was flying up to Europe to have meetings about attackers in Eastern Libya. So I flew up to Europe, got to my hotel late. It was about maybe midnight in um, the country I was in. Um, Maybe it was about 1 a.m. in Benghazi. So I actually called. I talked to Boone at the time, and he was actually on the roof. I didn't know that. So you guys had um, just had your first attack in the city. Well, you called him? I didn't yeah. know that. I didn't know. <laughs> Holy shit, I didn't know so, that. So this is after the fourth attack of the night, but it's yeah, yeah. Right after the first attack on the annex. Yeah, yeah. And yep, so yep. he picks up, he says, hey, all is safe. I'm just busy. And it's a little loud. And I thought, I was like, oh, those assholes are playing video games. And so I just like hung <laughs> up the phone and went to bed, right? Holy so shit. so then I woke up about five in the morning and I have all these messages from my mom on my iPad. She luckily knew I left Benghazi, but she knew all you guys were there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I was like, oh my God. And so then I started calling through the Rolodex and I think I called maybe seven numbers and then Tig answered. So oh, Tig man. is the first one who told me about the attacks. Where, where were, you, was, were we in Germany at that time or are we still in Tripoli hanging out? No, you guys, you guys were... Um, it was six in the morning. You hadn't left. Like, oh, it hadn't left. Yeah. Hadn't left Benghazi yet. No Holy shit. That is. Um, yeah. You might've called my phone. I probably didn't even answer it. Yeah, well, actually. all the phones were dead. Yeah. You're, you know, that was, I'm surprised. He you know, was the only charged one. <laughs> and he, he has, he was always going back down to take, to take pisses, get water. He's probably charging his phone on his, on his flash yeah. stick. Um, what were you, were you getting any information at all from, Head from uh, Tripoli or from even RCOB or even, you know, or even, uh, I'd say his real name, even our RTO, our radio, you know, big yeah, guy. We big won't guy. talk about your TL. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, because I had to focus my book on the attackers, I did cut out a lot of stuff about the COB and your TL, but even the little bits I left in there are not very, uh, very well, they good. Did, well, they didn't do anything. I mean, you're yeah. not telling, it's not like we're trying to knock them. They just they didn't it, do anything. It's just and, part of the story, right? I, I can only do so much. It, um, it is. But actually, this will be very surprising to you. So about 9 a.m., I went into the embassy in the country I was in. They did not know. They thought people were still looking for the ambassador. So that would be 10 a.m. in Benghazi, So Whoa. which is super odd because some stuff was reported in the press. So, um, yeah, there was no, it, the, no information was shared. Even when I first got there, I told our deputy chief of station from Tripoli, who was with me on the trip, hey, we lost Ruin and Bob, you need to fly back. And he's like, nah, I got dinner plans tonight. I'm just going to stay in town. That stayed in the book, don't worry. <laughs> wow. I, so yeah, so I'm the one that told him he had no idea we lost two CIA officers. And this is hours after we lost them. Wow. And at 10 a.m., that's actually around the time I was looking, they brought the ambassador's body back and I had actually checked his body. I, I just wanted to make sure there was any, honestly, I wanted to make sure he was it was him. But I wanted to, when I pulled I was honestly looking for bombs. I just didn't want any bombs in that bag with him. I remember looking at him. Wow. Holy shit. All right. So you, you're get it. You're there. Are you fighting to get back? Or are you just coming back on a scheduled plane that when you're supposed to come back to Libya or you're like, Hey, I need to get on the first hop, get me on that plane to get, get back home. So I still carried out the <laughs> meetings. So I went and met with our liaison and I carried, I, I carried out the meetings and then I took the first plane out. That's 
like the next morning. So I kind of came back maybe like, I don't know, 12 or 15 hours earlier than my scheduled plan. Because actually on my way home, I was going to go hang out in Malta for a couple days and then come back to (laughs) to Libya. But anyway, so yeah, I flew straight into Tripoli and then I got back to work basically investigating the attacks. And I stayed in Tripoli until the end of November. No, and we have since left. Why? I have my own opinion. You You did. I I have my own opinions of why they flew us out early. All the, just the contractors. My opinion was because they were flying Petraeus in and they didn't want us to talk to him. They wanted to get their part of the story, the, the, the case officers, the staffers part of the story. Um, that's my opinion on, on why we where we didn't stay there. I know I know our TL said, no, we just wanted to get you guys out of there. You'd been through a lot, but we had no idea Petraeus was coming in to get debriefed actually in Tripoli. You were there when he, he showed up, correct? Were you in Tripoli? Well, I was when Petraeus showed up, but Petraeus came in November. So okay. I think they sent you guys out to sequester you so you couldn't tell the story. So, cause you guys couldn't talk to anyone for what, like five or six days. It was, it was a week. Yeah, it was a week. Yeah, yeah, because like on day seven, I actually got a message from Tig and he was like, hey, did that collection I did at the consulate the morning of the attacks yield anything? And I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? And he's like, oh yeah, I went over the consulate in the morning of September 11th and did a technical collection. And I was like, what? And I'm like, where is it? He's like, I gave it to Bob. So I go over to Bob. I'm like, Bob, did like Tig give you like a flash drive? And he's like, yeah, I didn't know what it was. So then I go, Tig, he says, I don't know what it was. And Tig's like, I told him exactly what it was. So yeah, um, but that way, yeah. So it was about a week until Tig could ask me about it. That's the first time he was able to speak to me. And did Bob ever tell you? I found a, a BlackBerry when the. I remember we used to do old Blackberries. I found one at the chief's at the chief's house during the attack when we were doing our searches. I gave. I actually wrote about it even in the book, but I gave it to gave it to Bob. Said, "Hey, this might be something." Did you ever get a look at any of that? Did he ever say no. he had? A, and I said, "This is probably the ambassador's because it looked like the one that I'd seen him carrying around." Granted, all the blackberries looked the same, but it was in the. It was in his. It was near his room. It was back there. Nothing ever came of that. I, I think that thing just disappeared too. I don't think yeah, anybody. I, I never saw that. And even when FBI came, I met with them. Obviously, when they first came to country, I was kind of like <laughs> the one helping them because CIA didn't really want them there. And there's, we definitely never handed a BlackBerry over from what I can remember. Okay. Wow. Well, we're going, you know, as you're going on and we're doing after the attack, I know you worked a little bit more. When did the wheels start to fall off? And they were like, okay, Sarah's not part of the, Benghazi whitewash team uh, within within the agency. What you know? When did that happen? What was the first? And I I know I know you. I know you don't put up with shit. Um, how did that go? And and when you started to feel it, what did you? What were you saying to him? Were you were you just being ostracized, or were you just trying to still help us get the truth out there because you knew we were getting fucked over? Or or yeah. what was that like? Well, it was really interesting. It kind of all happened. Well, I knew the first day that you guys weren't able to go because I flew into Tripoli and I came in late and I was driven in and I started walking up like the main steps of the building in Tripoli where our skip was and it's pure dark and I hear a guy say that asshole wouldn't let them go in Benghazi and I was like looking around and it was the team leader your team leader from Tripoli okay he told me upon me arriving in Tripoli that Bob didn't let you guys go so I knew immediately then obviously seven days later, I talked to Tig, I talked to Boone, I started talking to you guys when you guys were allowed to speak to the public or human beings again. Um, but around the same time, around day seven is the day we got the video. So we got the consulate video and the annex video 
and we were able to watch them. So we got the videos and we brought them into the GRS team room and started playing it. And we can see you guys sitting in the car. And so I turned to your team lead from Benghazi and yeah. I said, what the hell? Why are they like with their guns, with their equipment on and that damn car's not moving? So we got in a little tip then. Um, and then can, that can you talk about what he said? Can you tell or or is that classified stuff you can't no, say? No, I mean, I don't know. We were in well, a classified I, room when we had the argument. Um, <laughs> so no, he basically said, oh no, you know, Bob had us wait. We were waiting for 17 February to respond. But what a lot of people don't know, and you're going to be surprised by this because I don't think I've told you this. Um, so when the attacks kicked off, Bob made his first phone call to Fozzie sure. Bufatif, who was the head of the 17th February. On that first phone call, he told Bob, I am not sending you any reinforcements tonight. I have nothing to send you. That Bob, motherfucker. Bob knew from the first phone call. So he spent the whole night lying to you guys that 17th February was responding. So he didn't have to send you there, even though he knew nobody was going to help. So that's, I always tell people, Screw the stand down. The issue is Bob lied to his security team, yeah. causing deadly delays. Also, they put you guys at risk because you kept interacting with terrorists and you're like, yeah. this is 17 Feb. I don't want to shoot at a friendly. And you guys kept risking your lives when 17 Feb was never going to show up. Wow. I want, who are those fucking little guys out there following me? <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah, just so two I, kids off the street. I just grabbed two you know, kids off the fucking street. My oh, wow. theory is the two that were with you and Boone were from a group called the Zawiya Martyrs Brigade. Okay. So they were in later years, they're one of the militias who fought against the Islamists. So yeah, that, I you did link up with two. So basically we friendly. just got we just got lucky. We just got fucking lucky. got lucky. Yeah. Holy fuck. Sorry, I'm saying fuck a lot, but Jesus. <laughs> I mean, it's 10 years. I didn't know that. I mm -hmm. so I mean, because that 30 minutes, he just he didn't say that one time, hey, these guys aren't coming. He oh, never he said it. And and you know what? Why didn't our TL, which we can't name, which that mm -hmm. piece of shit. Why didn't he stand up for us? Why didn't he say, hey, why didn't he tell us? He should have been telling us. That's his job. He, he's in charge of us. That's, that's Yeah, they horseshit. let you go on all night long that you're going to get some backup support. They even led you on that military was sending, U.S. military was sending backup support, and they knew that wasn't coming either. Oh, yeah, because they kept... just played as fools all night long by your own mm -hmm. bosses, which is pretty depressing. Well, and that, that honestly, that doesn't shock me with how the agency was going. I mean, I could see the difference from 06 to, to 2012. You saw the old guys, the jawbreaker guys, the military guys that were case officers, guys like, I, I think he's retired now. So hopefully, we, isn't Sam Man? Great guy. Love that guy. Former mm -hmm. military, tremendous, but he was retiring. All those guys were leaving and were getting these, these kids that were could make up shit. Like you said, they could make up fucking reports and it would be okay. They could make up intelligence. They could, well, so with that, the attackers, let's get, because the book, in your book, and who, who co-wrote the book with you? So Boone did. So Dave, yeah, Boone. So you're 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 a little sidekick all night. Yeah, and Boone, and Boone is dude. He's he's as far as an operator goes, he's tremendous. And that was one of the reasons of also why I think people should write to read it because adding his name to it, you know, Sarah, I know your integrity is fucking golden, but you know, people don't really know you as far as they will now. They're going to start to, but um, you know, having Boone on there does help because Boone was there and Boone. I, you know, as far as operators goes, he's, he's top notch. He is, he's tremendous. He did a tremendous job that night. And, um, and uh, you know, having him there, I knew when he said, yeah, he's part of it. I'm like, well, fuck, this is spot on. It's going to be spot on book. I know Sarah, but I also know Boone and Boone's not going to let Sarah, not that she would, but it's not going to go and 
we're not going to over be overzealous and make it and, and fabricate shit. So that's huge having him on the book. It really is. It, it is. And, yeah. And, and honestly, the reason, the only reason the book is done because of Boone, like I'm the expert, right? But I kept giving up on it, right? I was like, nobody cares. We're going to find these attackers. Nobody's going to do anything. And he just kept saying, just do it. Just knock it out. Just like suck it up. If you don't do it, nobody's going to do it. And he's right. We're 10 years later. If I hadn't done like my list of attackers, the U.S. government doesn't have, it wouldn't have been done if I didn't do it. So so I'm happy he prodded me along the way. He was yeah. really a pain in the ass. I, I wanted to leave his name a thousand times. But he is the reason it got done. No, and it's great having him having him on there. Um, and and you know he's even just not the attackers. Like I said earlier, before you came on, I'm gonna find out stuff I didn't even know. The stuff like you just said with Bob, not knowing and not telling us. Nobody knows that. This is the first time outside of the, maybe the inner circle of the agency that people are gonna hear that, and that's that's fucking huge. Because you're you're right. It put us at some dire straits. We may have handled ourselves. I'm. We would have handled ourselves a lot differently, tactically speaking, if we knew that. Hey, we don't know. We really don't know. 17 February. Anybody's coming. We would have done things different. It may have been better. It may have been worse. But we at least should know. You got to have all the information during a combat operation or a security operation because it dictates how you're going to use your tactics. And like I said, with those two guys we got, I may not even have asked them. I may have pointed my gun and said, get the fuck out of here. But right. luckily for us, they were friendlies and they, I mean, we just got fucking lucky. Um, and um, that's a really good example of me watching the security surveillance is when, you know, just after midnight, when those attackers started forming outside yeah. of the annex, you guys weren't sure they were 17th Feb. Yeah. I mean, if you would have known 17th Feb wasn't responding, you could have engaged them immediately instead of letting them coalesce together do we did we waited it was basically wait till you see the whites of their eyes it was like revolutionary warship like mm -hmm. don't shoot don't shoot don't shoot we have right. no idea um yeah so that I, I don't think i don't think civilians within the agency that don't know anything about military or tactics they realize those little things obviously cost lives they mm -hmm. and they put you on your heel so instead of you being the aggressor and having the initiative now it gives the enemy the initiative. And that's what that's what you want to, to, to have the set up on the good foot and win the fight. You want the initiative. You want the advantage right off the bat. And we were always at a disadvantage because we were always getting in. Now I know it because we're, we're always getting bad poop. We're getting bad info. They're not fucking telling us. Uh, well, as you, you know, the night went on, you know, you know, as and we're, I want to keep a lot of it in the book so people buy your book and they, they need to read it. I they definitely need to read it. Before we get into the attackers, was there anything else that night that maybe I don't know <clears throat> or that we would know that was in there aside from the attackers? And I want to know where the attackers are from, what what mm -hmm. what militias they were friendlies with and, and so forth. But yeah. other than that, what what else, one more thing and then that's it. We'll, don't give up your book. I don't even okay, give one up. more thing. Well, this was in the Benghazi report. So you know this, but a lot of people besides I think you and my mom. I think Tig read a few pages and gave up on it, but you and my mom read the Benghazi report. I know Boone did, and this is the only human I, did. I yeah, know. I did. So, but in the Benghazi report, we make it very clear that the force that actually came at the end of the night yeah. and brought you guys to the airport was Gaddafi loyalists. It was an underground military intelligence unit in Benghazi we had no relationship with. So that's something a lot of people that, that think some allied militia came and got us. It's like, no, Gaddafi's people like brought us out and like, that's sad that we had to rely on Gaddafi's people. It's completely ironic, and it shows the irony of war. 
that you got saved by your enemy. You were, yeah. we, we, that's what I tell people. And I, you, I read it. So I saw it in there. I actually I put it in my, when I talk my public speeches, I put that in there because I, first, I think it's fucking ironic as hell, but mm-hmm. people need to know it. It's like, dude, you were, we were saved by Omar Gaddafi. I mean, literally, we were saved by the guy that we were trying to kill. If that doesn't show you how fucked up the agency is and fucked up com- war is sometimes, I don't know what does. But again, lucky. We got lucky. And sometimes yeah. luck is what you need. And, and, and remember the private plane that brought Team Tripoli. So your GRS team from Tripoli, Gaddafi Loyalist plane. Gaddafi Loyalist <laughs> plane, oil, oil tiger. He's got money. Got yeah. Um, where did you where did you start to find you know with get gather the info on the on the terrorist uh, terrorists that came in and was it just uh uh Ansar Sharia and AQIM or were there other other militias or militias friendly as McCain would say friendly militias that came in or friendly terrorists that came in to help us sure. um well when we started our focus was we wanted to prove the world this is an al-Qaeda attack so we started focusing on the Al-Qaeda attackers at the consulate. Okay. You know, one of the things that's really interesting is FBI released about 30 photos of the attackers. Yeah. You know, we know there was about 80, spe- 80 faces in the video, right? But there's about 150 attackers in the area. They, of those 30 photos, there is not one Al-Qaeda guy in the photos. Why? Um, but exactly. So we said, screw the photos they released. We're starting from scratch. We're not gonna use any of their information. And we're just going to do our own investigation. Um, and so, yes, it's a, it was an Al-Qaeda-directed attack. It was directed by the now late Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri. So, yay, CIA for taking him out in Kabul. I didn't know that. I had no... Yeah. Zawahiri did art. Yeah, Man, he directed that, the attack. And he actually wow. had all these old networks. So you'll Holy see in our shit. book, there's a lot of guys who were in the Islamic, the Egypt and Islamic Jihad. That was the yep. group he was in charge of before Al-Qaeda. You'll see a lot of the senior leaders now, right? Because it's been so many years. The senior leaders who sent fighters fought in Afghanistan. You'll see a lot of the attackers who fought in Algeria with Al-Qaeda. As you said, AQIM had a lot of attackers, well over 40 AQIM members alone were involved in this attack. So basically the main mastermind for the consulate is Muqtab al-Muqtar. Everyone knows him, one-eyed, Marlboro guy. Every year we kill him in a strike. He finally died in like 2016, (laughs) super famous. Um, fought in Afghanistan. So he was actually the mastermind who set up the whole kidnapping plot to go get the ambassador. And, so. There you go. And that's how I tell, I, I tell people with the attacks that I don't know if he was going to get kidnapped or not. But that being said, I said, by how they did it, they could have rolled us up at, honestly, they had so many guys there. They could have rolled oh. us up at any time. And I was like, they were trying to kidnap him or they were trying to kidnap somebody. Do you think it was, he was a high value target, of course, but once once they figured out that and they pulled him out and he was dead and maybe you have more information. Was he, I thought he was dead from the smoke inhalation. I didn't think he was dead when he got to the hospital. Um, oh, well, so yeah, I talked to the person who pulled him out actually. And he, um, <laughs> yeah. So he was, he was deceased when they pulled him out. So they thought. were confused, you know what? So when they came out of the building with him, they set him on the ground and then everyone kind of cheered because they saved an American, but they really didn't, wasn't logical to them yet. Oh, this is actually a deceased American. So that's why in the video, they're all like, Allah Akbar, because they think, oh my God, we saved this man. Then, you know, they start walking away. The neighbor who knows him sees them with the ambassadors, like put him in my car. He actually brought him to the Benghazi Benghazi Medical Center. So luckily he was transported by a friendly too. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, they tried to revive him. He was he was 
well past dead, even sure. when they carried him on the building, well, unfortunately. And I, and I didn't see any marks that, that would indicate he was desecrated. I didn't check his no. genitalia. I know that was a big conspiracy. No, I don't think no. anything like that happened. No, really, no what really would happen, and, and there's a medical report, yeah, nothing, the, the ambassador didn't have a bruise on his body. Um, what happened is, you know, he just passed out in a room next to yeah. a bed. And there was just nosy locals walking around in the house. And one kind of like tripped over him. And he's like, oh my God, he runs out. And then he gets actually a Libyan army officer who was there that was nosy, right? Someone said there's an attack on the Benghazi University and then it ended up being the consul. He's like, I don't even know you guys had a consul. I'm like, nobody does. Um, so he then got pulled him in. He's like, you're an official. Come, there's a man in here. And then they carried him out. Um, so he was never, he never even interacted with the terrorists, luckily. I, and so that was, that's the picture of them, the iconic picture of him being mm -hmm. drug out in his white t-shirt. Yes. Wow. With, did we not know, did we have no idea we had that many terrorists? Did Bob not care? Did he not want to, I know he didn't want to listen to, obviously with the interaction that we had where me and Boone did our surveillance, told you, and then we got reprimanded what was what was the mentality what was the instate of us not wanting to know there were terrorists or just saying ah oh, there's nothing to see here i'm just going to do this yeah i think right. there's, there's there's multiple <clears throat> policy failures one is the fact that basically you know how the cia works you collect intelligence to report it to somebody usually congress the policymakers. most people at the time only cared about the politics of libya and so that's what they're asking for so cia had Libya staffed with political case officers. In Benghazi, we only had one, as you know him, we only had one counterterrorism case officer yeah. in Benghazi. We only had, I think the only counterterrorism case officer when we were in Tripoli together was the COS. Yeah. Because when it. I went out there, we were the only two. We were like a two-man team. Um, and we'd always piss off everybody else. They're like, why are you two all together? I'm like, because none of you know what to do with CT. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so the bodies weren't even there to collect the info even if we wanted to. And looking at that, at the time, if you don't remember, remember the political statement from Barack Obama, who was running on the platform, Al-Qaeda was on the run. And obviously it wasn't. I still think that has a lot to do with us not getting the support we needed. And I think that has a lot to do with not having the proper people out there to collect CT, collect counterterrorism uh, intelligence, do, do CT work. Is because Al-Qaeda wasn't supposed to exist anymore. And right. from what from what you know, and for obviously from what I know, but you're I think you're even you're the foremost expert on it because that's what you did. You track these people. We saw that Al Qaeda was extremely alive and well. And to hear that Zawahiri actually coordinated our attack, that tells me Al Qaeda was fucking still rocking because that no, yep. holy shit, that is that's a, that's unbelievable. I, I yeah. didn't know that. And and he 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 was going to get. Al-Qaeda members released for the yeah. ambassador and then it was going to be an honor of Abu Yaqia. So, so is that what it was for the kidnap to do the, the, the to do a trade-off of, of the Gitmo guys, right? Those eight. No, it wasn't going to be the Gitmo guys, actually. So it's really interesting. Okay. You know, um, at the beginning of the Arab Spring, a ton of prisoners <clears throat> got released, be it Tunisia, yep. Libya, Egypt. Wait till you see our book. Almost every guy in our book, I swear to God, was detained somewhere prior to the attacks and were supposed to be in prison when they committed the attack. Um, so they then almost got became obsessed, right? Like, hey, we now got to go back and get the guys that got left behind. So yeah, one of the key um, terrorists, I mean, a lot of people won't know him. I never worked Al-Qaeda in Iraq, but one of the key terrorists, his brother was the lead commander who led the attack on the ground that night. He was actually on death row in Iraq. So he was one of the people they were going to ask for, you know, to get him released. Another key terrorist they asked for, and 
we're going to ask for. Um, he was in Jordan. He was detained for um, being involved in an airport plot there. Again, another Al Qaeda Iraq guy. Two years later, the same Benghazi guys kidnapped the Jordanian ambassador in Tripoli. Basically, a Benghazi attacker from our consulate kidnapped him. Uh, the basically mastermind of the U.S. the mortar attack transported him to Benghazi, and then another Benghazi attacker held him hostage in his house. So our whole all our attackers were involved. They wow. then got that AQI guy released. Interestingly, wow. he now leads our attackers basically at a refugee camp outside Tripoli. So he's still in the game. He's still linked to our Benghazi attackers, and they're still like unabated. Wow, that's unbelievable. I, with the, moving on, I, I know I want to save your book. We'll, as we get through Benghazi and we do this, you get back to the agency, you get back to headquarters. At one point, did you see that this was starting to get, we were starting to get rolled a little bit. They were going to basically turn on us. They weren't going to support us. The, the heads, there are people within the office that did. There was, I, it was a faction, complete fact. There were guys that did and there were guys that didn't. But yeah. When you saw that, I, I believe, didn't you also write a letter or something that, or can we not talk about I, no, we, we Can we talk about that? Um, I, th I yeah, thought you wrote a letter. My, it's out of my book. So this is raw content for all. Um, but yeah, so it actually happened while I was still in Tripoli. So like I said, General Petraeus came out yeah. to Tripoli in November. He came out, gave us a speech. Um, a little people, a few people on Benghazi got upset because they realized, oh, he actually doesn't know what has happened. Um, well, wait, wait, wait. he didn't know. What? He didn't know what, Petraeus didn't know what happened to Benghazi when he came so in? He, well, he did not know about the delay and those type of things. There's reasons why he doesn't know about the delay. <laughs> it's actually not his fault. So when the Benghazi attacks happened, Bob forgot to call CIA headquarters and report an attack. So he waited 30 minutes into the attack. And then the communications officer in Benghazi is like, hey, Bob, you need to tell call CIA and send attacks going on. And he's like, oh, yeah. So Bob then called. You know, can I just say, you know, it's so crazy. I feel like anybody who watched 13 hours or read the book was like, wow, this Bob guy seems really incompetent. Oh, and they then they're going to listen good. to this interview. And it's like they they made him look better than he was. All right, that's what oh. I tell people. I said, we made him look better than he actually oh, was. I get so mad how good they made him look in 13 hours. You we, did. No idea. We, we did. We uh, did. Wait, wait. So so I can't, I'm not going to say his name, but big former Vietnam guy, radio operator guy. I don't yeah. say it's because I think I, I told him I would never put yeah. his name out there. Yeah. But. So he's the one that told Bob, hey, you never reported it. Wow. So so he actually, actually, it was Bob who called chief of station. The, the, the communications guy called headquarters. The interesting thing is, like I told you, this is 30 minutes in. So then when headquarters said, oh, my God, an attack's happening. Did you send a response? He said, yes. Holy so shit, he, that motherfucker. Right? He might have gone, but it was factual at the time. So that's then what General Petraeus got, right? Hey, an attack just happened in Benghazi. CIA sent a team from Benghazi. CIA sent a team from Tripoli. So to the directing CIA, he's like, yeah, good. My people are doing what my people do. Okay. So he did not know until this incident. So he says that I basically write a little note to yeah. his chief of staff, hand it off to him. And then that night I wrote an official um, IG complaint because I honestly did not know until that point that the director didn't know you guys were delayed. When I knew, found out our own director was lied to, I was like, this is enough. And that's when I stepped up. So yeah, I wrote an IG complaint on, um, I think it was maybe a Thursday night or a Friday night. I got a pretty immediate response from yeah, what, what, what a very was, positive what? response. He said, I appreciate you sending this to me. I'm actually going to send a team out to investigate this personally. Um, and then 
by the next week he was out of out as um the director of the cia and it never that's happened. right um, so do you think, do you think that's think just a coincidence do you think that's just a coincidence or do you think that okay they had it on him and they were saving that for so if he ever stepped out of line of the status quo politicians most of them are the were obama zealots at that time anyway. i would have no insight into i mean you know what i mean i could guess yeah. i could but it I, just it, it just seems like a heck of, with people right well, like, i know you didn't hang out with them <laughs> i just to me i just like man that's heck of a coincidence that he's going to actually help us and all of a sudden mm-hmm. oh my gosh he's cheating on his you know he's having an affair and i hate to say it to y'all agency 99% of you fucks are having affairs. So yes. <laughs> and in co- I worked in Congress. 99% of them Jesus. are having affairs. <laughs> so so I, I, I know, I know we're going long and Ian step in whenever brother, but I'm, no, this is the, I mean, oh this is gosh. explosive because of this the fact is. that th- this is an interview where you're learning new things and you were there. I mean, so I think this audience is going to, this audience are a lot of people who have read 13 hours. They watched 13 hours and they felt like they knew everything there was to know about the attack. And 10 years later, even Chris is even, learning new things. Yeah. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. I, and I, I'd love you just to go page to page on your book. I, I, you're, <laughs> you're sending me a copy, right? I get a fucking copy of the book. Yeah, to... The problem is you would have a copy today. The CIA has completely approved my book, but because oh, that's, how it, but because now I'm a DOD employee, DOD still has it. So like you guys got stuck waiting on DOD. I'm still yeah, yeah. stuck waiting on DOD. So I can't release my book until I get the DOD approval back. So sure. I'm in a purgatory right now, unfortunately. The book's ready to go. We wanted it out by 9-11. We're hoping DOD steps up, does their part, gets it up for us by 9-11. But you know. No, I, I, I mean, I would go, think go, that, go. that that it's just, uh, I, and I could be wrong. Do you think that's a little too hopeful that it'll be out by 9-11? We're recording this on the 1st of September, yeah. and there's no pre-order link anywhere. There's no, like, we don't even know what the cover looks like, right? Well, I actually made the cover. So the funny thing is, is we were told that we would have the DOD approval by the beginning of last week. So we had everything in place to kind of move it forward last week. So now, like I said, we're kind of in a limbo. But Boone and I decided to actually self-publish. So we don't actually have to worry about the politics of Benghazi. We don't have to get any publisher's opinion. We are just going to put the book out on our own as is and um, give people the raw content. Oh my goodness. And so now are you, you have a clearance lawyer, you're doing all that to get it through with the DOD. Yeah. So you've done it. Yeah, I same, get it. Same Good. lawyer you use, like I said, oh. it's approved. It's just the DOD, which is super strange, right? Because it's only because I'm employed there. We know there's not much really DOD gone. Yeah, yeah. Really. People in Benghazi, let alone really. they didn't respond. So yeah, it's it, it's actually kind of fun. Do you have funny. anything? Do you have any? Well, it's funny. It's it's funny <laughs> as in just ludicrous. It's you know, reco- it's recopulous funny. Stuff through it many times. Do you have anything in the book about the DOD response? Did you know anything? I know it's completely separate, but did you know anything about and why the lack thereof of there being a response, even though they knew what was? I I, I trust our 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 communications officer that was in there. I I trust. He's one of the guys. I love him to death. Big old teddy bear. He knew what the fuck he was doing. He said he made the calls to everybody. And when I said everybody, it was also DOD. Do you have anything in there? Or did you find anything of why they didn't send a response team or any? I know they yeah. were pre-positioning people. There's, they were, but this stuff. There's a couple pieces. So, so there's <clears throat> two main pieces. So there was one thing asked for by the CIA. It was the medevac. Actually, around midnight, your own team lead in Benghazi called that off, said, we don't need a medevac. So that's your own fault. Um, <laughs> 
The other well, thing wait, is the, the the Benghazi team lead, not team not lead, not the, the triple. Team lead, yeah, the, the the jackass, oh, not the one that actually knew what the. I, I'm yeah. the other team so, yeah. lead in Triple. We he, all know the team yeah. team lead in Triple was top notch. He's not good. Your yeah. your team lead. Yeah, he's um, good. Yeah, yeah I, I I can only say positive about the Triple team lead. Of did course. did he did you, did he say why did he do did you get anything of what the fuck? Yeah, well, he basically told um kind of your deputy team lead in Triple call it off. We're not going to need it, and then he called up called it off um so, so that's why there was no medevac then uh, kind of an hour after that there was this crappy post on facebook from something called like the triple military council it wasn't even a legit site nobody was tracking it saying there was going to be attack on the u.s embassy in tripoli from that point on nobody even knew attacks were still going on ongoing in Benghazi they shifted every focus to Tripoli so at five in the morning Benghazi time when DOD put the order out to send I don't know if you've ever read it but when they put the order out to send resources I don't know if you've seen it only sends resources to Tripoli no. the word Benghazi is not in the order anywhere and remember you guys still have another attack coming so this is even prior Jeez. to the mortar strike so yeah they lost focus off of a Facebook post it's kind of embarrassing that was that was the Mike Morell analyst that is he trusted his analyst where he came on and when Morell was the deputy and he said yeah. I, there was a Facebook post that came out we trusted our analysts and the Facebook I and remember hearing him say that. the CIA the DOD like it's just like Everyone cared. And the funny thing is, is they moved all those people from the U.S. Embassy in Tripoli to our CIA annex. Anyway. Yeah, it was like an empty building. Um, but yeah, they cared more about protecting an empty building in Tripoli than to go in and help the people Jesus. where ongoing attacks were occurring. What in the fuck? I swear yeah. to you. I, I call I, it a shit show. It, it was complete shit show. <laughs> well, you know, we're moving and we'll get into a little bit. We might, sir, we might want to have you come back on to talk about because your story about being on the Benghazi select committees is a story within itself too. I remember you were banging your head against the wall on, and just to get on it. And then when Trey Gowdy brought you on, you saw a lot of shit that a lot of people didn't see in those rooms. Yeah, uh, and only I saw dramatic you know, when I first came on, like, yeah, the, it was, it was I, huge. I had to go and be um, debriefed myself before they let me, they went to the CIA and tried to get me removed. Yeah. yeah. It was a lot of drama. Um, yeah, there's a lot of mess in Congress. <laughs> People don't always just want to do their job right, but Trey did. And so that's why I stuck it out and went through all the that mess up there because I knew he wanted to do a good job. And do you think do you think just overall that committee without getting into details that him he was actually trying to find not I, I know he's a Republican and I know he's got allegiance. They all do, they say they don't, but do you think he was actually trying to get the truth and not just get hey, what we can do to help the right win elections and make sure that Hillary's not president, which she did that to herself with what happened. But right. um, yeah. do you think he really was the integrity? He just wanted to find out what was going on or was it was it a complete, hey, right versus left sort of thing going on? Sure. I actually have a really good example of that. But first, you know, I was there for, what, two years. I don't think I heard Trey Gowdy once say the name Hillary Clinton. That's how much she was on the back burner. I know people were briefing him like, hey, we got some of her emails. We're reading through them. We're looking what staff was doing, decisions that were being made. A lot of people were talking about um, Patrick Kennedy and Charlene Lamb. Yeah. Like their names yeah. are oh, those, those around talking about Hillary Clinton. Yeah, those uh, two. Those two should rot in hell. I, but, oh, but here's the example that I always give everybody. So, you know, I'm pretty apolitical, as you know, but when I actually got asked on the Benghazi committee, I had been a 20 year Democrat. 
Um, he didn't care. I was a Democrat, right? So he took a Democrat onto his Republican committee. Um, it was actually my time in Congress that made me leave the Democratic Party because they were so horrible to me. But yeah, he didn't give a damn. He's just like, hey, I want your knowledge. You seem to know the most about this. Like, that's what I need on my committee. So I think just that's proof alone. Like, he brought a dem in. Should he have done more in his report? Should he have? I mean, he did have a lot of information, but he didn't. But it really, he wasn't supposed to find a guilty or innocent verdict. He's just supposed to write yeah. the report, and then yeah. the assistant, then the then then what the attorney general, the little guy, what the fuck was his name? The little guy from Alabama. He was supposed to actually act action that he was supposed to do things. What what do you think on that? As far as you your know, opinion? I think you know, Congress only has so many carrots and sticks. Um, you know, really, what you want Congress to do is go fix broken programs, yeah. get funding to the people who need funding. So obviously, one of the things we did push right is getting state to increase their training again. But, you know, at the end of the day, there are some state officers that obviously, as we, we just said their names, they, sh they should have been fired from the US government. That actually really wasn't Congress's role, right? The Department yeah. of State should have stepped in and said, hey, here's all this evidence in front of us, like we need to can them. They can't can a Kennedy, right? Um, so unfortunately, you know, it's a broken system. I think the committee did what the committee can do, but it did teach me Congress has limits. Congress doesn't really have much power. Um, it's unfortunate. And, um, you know, it's an ongoing issue. Wow. Uh, that's amazing. I know I girl, I could talk to Sarah for like two hours about this, but again, I, I, mean, I, I, could, I could listen to it all. There's so uh, much. There's so much. Holy here. shit. This is, yeah. this is we, we are breaking news. Fuck you, Fox and CNN. We are breaking news here on the battle line. It's I mean, true, man. And, this is... and I do sometimes wonder how sometimes some of the stuff wow. we've had on this show doesn't get picked up. I would hope that some of this gets picked up because I think a lot of this is explosive. A lot yeah. of this we're hearing for the first time 10 years later. One thing I'm personally wondering, Sarah, is like as an outsider, I was someone who was working in political talk radio at the time. As Chris knows, I very briefly got to meet Glenn Doherty. I got to meet tons of people in the special operations community. And when I heard about this happening pretty shortly after the attack, all of us who were just observing the response were hearing this was a protest. This was over a YouTube video that basically no one watched. This wasn't even like right. a viral video. It no, wasn't even on anyone's radar. What was like your response when this is what you were hearing and this was the narrative of the mainstream media and Chris, Tig, Boone, they weren't able to come out there and combat any of it? Yeah, actually what a lot of people don't know is early on I was pushing really hard that there was no protest or video. And actually my chief of station at the time in Tripoli backed me. So what we were doing is sending dissents to the report. So when CIA was writing, hey, there's a protest, we were saying dissent from chief of station. There was no protest. Were they putting that in the report? I don't know, but that's kind of the, the kind of opportunity you have at CIA, you can write a dissent, right? Another thing is when we got the video, there was no protest. So I reached out to the CIA analyst that day, I said, we were watching the video in the GRS office. And I said, hey, I got the video. There's no protest, like start deleting it from your papers. And they said, we're not going to delete it until you mail us the video and we see oh, it for ourselves. Those motherfuckers. And they were going to, oh. And then we know they still have the video, right? So they got the proof and they still say that there was a protest in a video because that was the narrative they wanted and they just wanted to shut us up. And, and you might not have any knowledge on this whatsoever, but I'm going to ask wow. it anyway, just in case. When that video, and it was, it was a... <clears throat> YouTube video insulting Islam, I guess you would say, and it was low budget. It had people running around with towels on their head and, you know, whatever the fuck. But uh, that guy was later 
arrested for tax evasion. Uh, do you think he was targeted because of that video and made an example of? I, no one seems to know the answer to that. I mean, likely. I mean, they use the, the IRS for targeting all the time. I mean, many of us had IRS investigations against us who worked in Benghazi. So yeah, I, I mean, probably what happened and also uh, just another way to make him look bad, keep that video narrative going. As you said, the video did not go viral um, in Libya. Even a day after the attacks, when all of our policymakers were talking about the video, it still wasn't viral on September 13th. So yeah, the fact that anyone in Libya was watching this video, the video actually came up months prior. It just was another translated version that came around this time. But yeah, everyone's really confused about this. Even the Egypt protests were nothing to do with the video. Yeah. They were actually planned for maybe around the third week of August. They shifted them to September 11th. Again, so there's a video that came out in between and then now people are like, yeah, well, we, now we can complain about this video too. But the protests were never planned for the video what well, wow. do you think it was also maybe an attack on the first amendment in general it was a way to say to the american public you cannot put out a video insulting islam because you will put our troops in harm's way or you will put contractors in harm's way because i i almost felt like that's the message they were sending that if you put out certain videos on youtube you are you are harming our you know guys who are out there protecting us and youtube i think prior to that was like it really was a free speech platform and now it's not yeah maybe but i really think they just saw this video as something to capitalize for the narrative and then sure. remember when you now blame the video you got to run it down you got to prosecute the guy you got to show hey this this was the real reason right if you don't run it down then people are like well why'd you say it was a video you didn't go after the video guy so they were kind of stuck going after this guy um who you know who was kind of an idiot anyway <laughs> um just because they made such a big deal out of something nobody gave a damn about in Libya. It, it didn't. I didn't even know there was. A, I, we'd never heard of the fucking video until oh. I got to Germany three days after. Uh, three days after the ridiculous. Right. I, well, I, y'all, I, your book's coming out. I know what we. I, I don't. I, I want more, but I want people to read it. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, but but I do. You know, I would like you to bring on again when we got time in the end. Okay. We can make it happen to talk about the Benghazi Select Committee committee story because that's. I mean, here's the thing: huge. we were planning on just you and I kind of talking next week. I don't know if you want to do a part two next week because I, this I would think be the month. Yeah, yeah I, I, I I would if you're game. I'd like to bring on and let's just continue on and talk of because I, that in itself, even for me going there, I think I did three three times. I even have stories from there that were just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I mean, just, just, and it, it, it's, a, it is, it's, it's actually a, 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 I could write a book about that in itself. And I know you, you saw everybody testifying, you know, I only know about what happened to me. You right. sat in with everybody. So I, whatever you can talk about is that I'd love to have you on. Cause I'd like to know what, I'd like to know what some of those case officers knew. I, I didn't, I didn't know that her, I, uh, I didn't know she had written uh you know, uh, something that condemn that that basically said we weren't telling the truth a few days after the the case officer that was there. I had no idea. I would have loved to know what the hell she said behind closed doors of what you can say. Yeah. I know, you know a lot of really it's really funny. She wrote she wrote me. I want to say there was a um, news article that came out in San Diego. You know about the sand down. And like the next day, you know, I wasn't friends with her. She wrote yeah. me uh, in the internal CIA thing, this weird message, right? It looked like it was really formal. And I was like, oh my God, I think somebody's with her at a computer trying to solicit information from me. And yeah, so it was a message basically informal, but formal asking me who gave the info to the San Diego news 
people, which I, of course, had no idea. Yeah. But but I was like, oh, my God, like th- this chick is trying to like sell her own people. Like she, what she, happens she, if she, she just gets you know, she, she, She's trying. That's what we used to. <laughs> you know what? As the Juris guys towards the end of our career, I know me and Boone used to say this. And I used to say it with Tig, too. It's like, dude, we do more spying. We're doing more spying on our own people than we are trying to spy and catch terrorists. I think I said exactly. it after, after Bob reprimanded us for finding the Al-Qaeda guy. I mean, we found him. It was like Boone is like, holy shit. That's we nobody needed to tell us. I was like, that's the guy. Hey, yeah. Sarah, we got the guy. He's there. Here's the t- here's the 10 digit grid, not even an eight digit. We're giving you a one meter location of where he's at to go kill him. And we get reprimanded. We get chewed out. We're like, why are you guys doing that? Why are you guys going to find terrorists? Um, I thought that was our job, Chief. What the fuck? And so it's just amazing that that it really was. That was kind of a half-hearted joke, but as I've as we get farther and farther away from Benghazi, and I learn more away from my time, really feel like that's that's what we were doing. And from what you know, after the fact, especially she's there, they're trying to dig it for intel from you, but she should be trying to dig intel from the attackers. Who the fuck were they? What, no it, one cared about the attackers, so that's why we, we made it a big focus, and we self-funded our own, own investigation, so it's funny when people are like, you're gonna make money off a book. I'm like, make money off a book? I'm so in the hole. I know. It's, for <laughs> it's crazy, because I, I even said it before when we were doing the intro. I think the people who really paid, you know, the ultimate sacrifice to the guys we no longer have, but the people who really made the sacrifice, meaning you guys, yeah, certainly did not get rich off of it, and I even mentioned earlier uh, the the uh, funeral for Glenn Doherty was paid for by his friends. The government didn't cover any of that. And when you think yeah. about the amount of of money we waste on every single thing every day in this country, the billions of dollars, and they couldn't even pay for a funeral of a uh, former SEAL Team Six yeah. member and uh, CIA contractor, it's disgusting. Right. it's embarrassing i mean it, our it friends is. didn't get the respect they deserved you know in their death they haven't got the justice they deserved and it it, it does weigh heavy on the soul you know well, how, how do you feel 10 years later i'm just wondering because i think you know people have heard kind of chris's take on this and and tig and <clears throat> boone and all these guy and oz uh you're someone who's been completely out of the spotlight I'm sure when people meet you, they they don't have any <laughs> idea that you had anything to do with Benghazi, but everybody knows at least they've heard the, the word Benghazi. They may have seen the movie 13 Hours. They may have read the book. Uh, just what has your life been like this past 10 years when you think back, the fact that we're in September now? And yeah, it's been an entire decade. Yeah, I'll give it this kind of as my closing point because I do have to go off to another engagement, you know, I'm Sure, sure. She's, she's hot oh, shit right now. It's gonna get it's gonna get busier for you. I'm just telling you right now, it's gonna probably get busy for you. So be ready. You know, you know, as I've I've said, you know, me and Boone were kind of like in the weeds looking at these attackers. The interesting part and the frustrating part for us is when basically an attacker gets killed. So you know, we have um, seven attackers that were killed in U.S. airstrikes in Libya. There is not one press release that the US military killed a Benghazi attacker in an airstrike. Think of how think about that. We have another attacker in 2014 he was given his official terrorist designation, has his whole background, all the bad stuff he did completely excluded he was a Benghazi when there was plenty of evidence he was a Benghazi. They have cut the Benghazi attackers out of history. They have not gone after them. They want you to never say the word again and it's infuriating and we want to change the narrative and we want to show people, hey, the US government has not done their job in this and it's unsatisfactory. And, and you guys are, and it, it's never gonna go away as much as they try to 
this this good looking face will never go away. It's not going <laughs> anywhere. And that, no, but um, but with you doing this, sir, this is this is awesome. I I really I mean this is amazing shit. I like I I I'm flabbergasted at some of the stuff you you you, you said because I didn't know ten years still I didn't know that a lot of a lot of the stuff didn't happen that should have happened. Right. So no, this is this is awesome. And I yeah I I'd like you yeah, if we have you on again if right. if we can just to. Can, can you do, I mean, here. I know I'm putting you on the spot, but like a, no, a week to. from today, same time. Yeah, I'll circle back with you um, after this. Cause like I said, I got to run to unfortunately another meeting yeah. at one. Um, Go for it. But yep, we'll, we'll plan something and um, get on All the right. book. All right, this, thanks. This has been absolutely awesome, Sarah. So yeah, if we could do it next yeah. week and we could talk about the select committee, that would be awesome. Yeah. Okay. But really appreciate this. The fact that Chris learned stuff, I obviously learned a lot and I think our audience did too. Yeah. Um, the only th thing, I mean, we we don't have anywhere to pre-order the book. Do you have any uh, social media that you could promote? Is there anything to promote? What can we do to help you? What can we do to help? Um, you know, I will get you links. You know, we have we made up a quick little IG page. It's called Ascari Media Group. That's the name of um, who's producing it. But we'll get it'll get out there. We'll get you all the links for the books once okay. we get the DOD approval. Like I said, we're kind of a, a risk or tied, right? I mean, we can't really promote something we yeah, don't have approved. Um, <laughs> So, you know, unfortunately, we're, we're we're stuck waiting on a process of the U.S. government that should have been done by now. So um, we will share once we have everything. Okay. How, how cool. do you spell the uh, the Instagram for people who want to follow? It's just A-S-K-A-R and then media group. A scar. A-S-K-A-R-I. I scar. Oh, A-S-K-A-R-I. Media group. Okay. I'll make sure I put it in there. What were you saying? Yeah, it's like I thought the I was silent or something. A scar. A scar. A scar. Okay. No, we'll definitely get it out there. And yeah, super bad. That was her. That was her call sign. Why did you get out that before you go? Why did you get super bad? Tell us what. Tell everybody. Tell it really everybody. isn't much of a story. I had a lame one looper because I'm from the Upper Peninsula, of Michigan, and Boone oddly gave me super bad at one time, and it stuck, and still got it to this day. I don't know why. I still have no like no backstory, <laughs> and I still don't know. So I still have Sorry, one question. Sorry, that's all you're that getting, man. Answered. I that's gotta different. run. <laughs> that's all for this episode of the Battle Line Podcast. But we'll be back on Monday with more American Straight Talk. Until then, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Battleline Podcast and on Twitter at Battleline Pod. To sign up for future Battleline tactical courses, go to www.christantoparanto.net. Believe in yourself, face all challenges head on, and as always, never, never quit. quit.